Hello, it's 26th of May 2019 and this is episode 103 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Are you recovering from this glut of amazing Vanity Fair content? Just barely. (laughs) It's a nice form of recovery. It's like being hospitalised for overeating on chocolate or something. (laughs) Um, Because, yeah, it's been a good, good week in terms of Star Wars and I feel very well fed right now. So, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Yeah, it surpassed my expectations, let's just say, (laughs) in terms of like what they decided to emphasise. Mm-hmm. Because I'm pretty confident in our general reading of the story, but based on how things were going at Celebration and what they were kind of emphasizing there and like with the teaser and everything, um, I'm just surprised that they've pushed certain things so far, but in in a good way. Agreed. It was a very pleasant surprise. And also in a non-Vanity Fair thing, I have started listening to the audiobook of Dark Disciple, which is lots of fun. (laughs) But yeah, Mark Thompson, he does such an amazing job of reading the book and giving all the characters their own unique identities. Like, you can recognise everyone when he does, like, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon and Mace and Yoda and Quinlan and Asajj. All of them sound wildly different from each other and it's the biggest help because I struggle to sort of follow audiobooks. But because of the clarity of his enunciation, it's a pleasure to listen to. So thank you, Mark Thompson. You're the hero I needed. It's, uh, I guess, more of a performance, right? So it's kind of like you're listening to a radio play or something. Yeah, exactly. Listening to a radio play with a super talented guy doing every single voice. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really good. Um, but yeah, so let's move on from that into the real meat of the episode. Um So this episode is going to be almost entirely about the Vanity Fair coverage of The Rise of Skywalker. But before we get into that, we do want to discuss one very exciting news story that came out a few days ago from BuzzFeed. So yeah, would you care to read out the article, Kirsty? Sure. A movie based on Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, the beloved video game first released in 2003, is currently being written by Laeta Kalogridis who wrote Avatar and Shutter Island for Lucasfilm. Three sources close to the project told BuzzFeed News. The project should be welcome news to the Star Wars fandom, who may be feeling beaten down after Solo's disappointing box office led Lucasfilm to reevaluate the franchise's ambitions and scale back the studio's release schedule. Knights of the Old Republic is a role-playing game about Jedi versus the Sith set nearly 4,000 years before the events of 1977 Star Wars A New Hope. Fans have long yearned for its rich story to be adapted to film. At Star Wars Celebration in April, Lucasfilm President Kathleen Kennedy told MTV News, Yes, we are developing something to look at, after being asked about it. Right now, I have no idea where things might fall. Caligridis is close to finishing the first script of a potential KOTOR trilogy. (laughs) Trilogy? According to the three sources, she is the first woman writer of a Star Wars movie since The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, when Lee Brackett received a co-writing credit with Lawrence Kasdan. Lucasfilm has been criticised for hiring only white men to shepherd the world of Star Wars. Representatives from Lucasfilm did not respond to BuzzFeed News requests for comment. Shock! (laughs) So, 
So we're saying like it's a news story, but actually it's more like a rumor. Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, we're yeah. told that there are three sources close to it that have told BuzzFeed about this, but we don't know who they are for obvious reasons. So I'm very excited, but also trying to be cautious in case it turns out not to be true. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's best to be a bit wary about how far we go with this at this stage because it obviously is just a script and even beyond that it's just a rumor about a script so we can't take it for granted that this is happening but it seems like there's strong reason to believe that this is in motion and yeah it sounds really exciting um i'm not going to pretend that i know a great deal about kotor because I've never played those games. I know the very basics of the plot and the characters involved. So I know the names like Revan and Bastila. But beyond that, I don't have much of a sense of what goes on. And to be honest, if they are making like a film based on this story, I want to keep it that way, because I'd quite like to be surprised by how things play out. Yeah, I'm actually wondering if um, it would be based on that story of the actual video game, or if it's like a trilogy that's set in that era and maybe has new characters. Yeah. Because they don't they don't seem sure. Like they're saying it's based on that video game, but like don't go into details about the characters or anything. Mm. Um, so it could easily not be about Bastila and Revan. Yeah. Like, and I've seen conflicting views on what people would actually want in terms of whether people would prefer like a completely new story set in that time period or an adaption of the video game story and there seems to be lots of strong opinions about that i'm basically (laughs) as always (laughs) um, i'm basically open to whatever because to be honest it would all feel pretty new to me like beyond having basic familiarity with the characters of the video game so yeah i think as long as it's a good story i'm game and this writer i am familiar with some of her work like i really love shutter island the martin scorsese movie Mm. um and she also contributed to the screenplay of alita battle angel which i also really liked and was like pissed off to see like alt-right trolls sort of claim ownership of that movie because it's like it's really good on its own right (laughs) i don't like to see it tarnished like this we've been hammering on that drum for a long time like saying that we want a female writer for a star wars movie so i'm just over the moon and like you i did really enjoy shutter island as well yeah um so yeah it sounds like good news to me i think a lot of people are maybe wondering if um this is going to be tied to one of the existing stories that we've heard about in development whether it's benny offenweiss or ryan johnson but it kind of sounds from this Unless it's just that they don't know. Based on this article, it sounds like it's something separate. Yeah, that's one of the greatest mysteries for me with regards to this, to be honest. It's really not clear at all in terms of how this is positioned in relation to what has previously been announced. Because, yeah, I know there were lots of rumours going around that Benioff and Weiss were going to be doing an Old Republic set trilogy. But I think that was less a rumour and more just fans really really wanting them to be doing that so it's possible that their movies slash trilogy whatever is something completely separate from this in which case it raises the big question of well what the hell is it when is it going to take place because I doubt they'd be having two 
trilogies in development at the same time that are both set in the Old Republic, basically. So Eva later is writing the scripts for the Benioff and Weiss movies, which is different from what I'd previously understood because I thought they were writing the scripts themselves. Or it's something separate. Because I don't think what is being written here in terms of what this rumour is about is anything to do with what Ryan is working on. So that's yet another thing to factor into this and think about how everything might be falling into place. So yeah, right now it's all very confusing. And it's going to be confusing because we're not supposed to know anything. All (laughs) of this is rumours. Yeah. And it is interesting given how we just had the announcement of oh, we won't get another movie until 2022. And then even after that, there are only three movies, um, which everyone's assuming are going to be part of the same trilogy, but maybe won't be. Um, So that kind of gives us the message that, yes, they're slowing down and they've said things like that. But then also, and this is probably just the reality of how pre-production works, they have all of these other things in development. Like I'm sure there were endless pitches for TV shows, but only two or three are being made right now. Yes, um so yeah it's it's hard not to get excited when you hear these things but it's like oh it's even if a script's being written it's still a far cry from actually being like okay we're going to film this and let's start casting and so just gotta wait and see exactly so i guess in the greatest scheme of things paying someone to write the scripts for a trilogy that's basically like pennies compared to actually making it so like they're going to have lots of freedom and room to hire a ton of writers and get them all off working on their own Star Wars projects and then say get six scripts out of it at the end of it and only produce one of them the one that is considered to be the very best so yeah but yeah I would certainly be very hyped for this like based on the writer's credentials alone yeah as far as I'm concerned she has a lot of talent yeah I mean I I saw people listing her her work as if it was like cause for concern Mm. i don't know if those people are specifically like kotor fans and then were worried in terms of certain aspects of that story but um i thought it was good news so (laughs) let's just see i think some people are a bit worried because she's a credited writer on terminator genesis which i haven't seen but by all accounts is a pretty horrible movie um, but I don't think it's fair to hold her to account for that because I think that movie went through a pretty hellish production and she isn't the sole credited writer on it. She was one of probably many writers, to be honest, including many uncredited writers. And she could have easily written a really good solid draft that then other people came along and completely messed up. Hmm. E- or equally, she might have been brought in to try and salvage a draft that was pretty horrible but then just couldn't do it because it was irretrievably broken so who knows i i see a lot of people blaming screenwriters for having like bad movies on their credits and i don't always think it's fair because yeah unless it's fully your creation and fully your project with without this interference from external sources i don't think you can be fully judged on that yeah I guess I, <laughs> that's probably why some people feel so comfortable criticising Ryan Johnson's work, because he writes and directs, and people are like, well, this is clearly his own vision. Um, he's probably writing whatever turns out to be his trilogy or movie or whatever for Star Wars, the next one, um, kind of writing it almost by himself, mm. and probably working with Ram again. Yeah, that's what I'd expect. I'm sure he'll ask other people for feedback and opinions, but I would very much expect it to be a Ryan Johnson 
creative endeavor is not going to be like workshopped to death by 20 different people Mm. which as far as i'm concerned is a good thing yeah anyway either way it was just really nice to read the story um and see that yes okay they are approaching female writers and having them work on stuff whether or not that stuff makes it to to our screens um they they are hiring hiring people to like tell different kinds of stories from different perspectives so that was encouraging exactly so i know last time when we recorded the podcast there was that concern so we brought up that kathleen kennedy has said in the past or at least it's been rumored in the past that they have brought on lots of women writers and writers of colour to create ideas and write scripts and stuff. But we weren't sure how true that was because we hadn't really seen any evidence of it. And oh, this exactly. is like the first yeah. tangible evidence as such because we have a name. Yeah, if you don't announce it, then there's not really much for us to look at and get excited about. Yeah. So, um, And that's probably not their concern because they're probably confident enough that people will be interested because it's Star Wars. And you just have to wait and be patient. But I think it's because that's like hand in hand with them saying we care about diversity. It's like, okay, well, I'm not seeing it. So (laughs) yeah, Um, this makes me feel a little better about that. So that's good. Good. Yeah. No, I'm really happy about this too. It's very exciting news. Slash rumor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't want to get ahead of myself. It's like the the regular rumors we get about the the famous Obi-Wan series. (laughs) oh god yeah (laughs) there was another one of those this week but honestly we've spoken so much about a hypothetical obi-wan series it's like what's the point yeah there's nothing new to say it's like okay i hope it's true uh be interesting to hear about it when it's finally announced but yeah (laughs) there's nothing more to say until it is if it is exactly Uh, if it is formally announced and it is 100 percent happening then we'll talk about it (laughs) basically Okay, cool. So let's move on into what will be the complete bulk of this episode, which is the discussion of the amazing Vanity Fair coverage that came out. So this broke on Wednesday. I think it was probably early morning in in America, and it was early afternoon in the UK. Um, and yeah, it was so hype. Such a good day. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, where were you, Kirsty? Oh well, the first thing I saw were, were the covers, mm-hmm. and I love them so much. They're beautiful. I yeah. think they're easily the best Vanity Fair covers for the sequel trilogy. They're really great. Like even the backgrounds are just beautiful colors. Um, and okay, does it look to you like Ray and Kylo might be looking at each other? I do kind of get that vibe, especially from Ray. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's especially intriguing because Joanna Robinson, one of the Vanity Fair writers, she put out a tweet saying that there's saying that there's some sort of secret message in the covers, and of course that has had people going at them with absolute ferocity, as you would expect from Star Wars slash Raylo fandom, um, and trying to figure out what could be going on. So I've seen like literally dozens of theories. They're all really cool. I'm not super convinced that anyone's actually got it so far. But yeah, like the main thing that stands out to me is that they're really beautiful covers. And yeah, then you have obvious stuff like the sun seems to be setting on Kylo and the sun is rising behind Rey. Are we sure about that though? Because I know the, the sun is, the sky is lighter behind Rey, 
but the orange colors still kind of look like it, it could be the same sky setting it's just in a different do you know what i mean i know what you mean i don't think it's definitive i think you can make a case for it being the sun setting behind kylo because it's darker it looks like perhaps night is coming in but equally it could be the night about to vanish you know like red sky in the morning perhaps as the old saying goes <laughs> um but yeah like again this is why i'm not particularly convinced by any of the theories i've seen about the supposed hidden meaning behind the covers because it's a beautiful background but i think reading anything specific into it is almost impossible because there's a lot going on with it and you can go crazy far with it you know like the position of the text on <laughs> kylo's cover is higher than the position of the text on ray's cover what does it mean mm. and stuff and i'm not saying any of this is fruitless i think it's all fun and as long as people are having a good time of it then i think it's worth doing but i just feel like i can't reach any solutions about what the covers might be saying beyond the obvious that you have both of them looking pensive and thoughtful in this vast barren desert setting and their beautiful sublime almost quasi romantic images of them both and i love them it is romantic <laughs> just gonna put that out there yes and... you can remove the quasi rachel <laughs> uh go big Rayla, or go home <laughs> and that's what they've done so i'm very happy about that yes and it looks like so this is like the wadi rum set that we now know is pasana is that the name of the planet I believe so. I'll just need to scroll down to the caption. I keep going to say Parnassus, which is my <laughs> character dad and yes. played in SNL. <laughs> How amazing would that be? But yeah, whether they're looking at each other or they're standing side by side, this is meant to be, whether it turns out to be like exactly the same in the movie or not. But it kind of reminds me of that behind the scenes footage we got of Adam as Kylo, like with his hair whipping around in, in that sand setting um, before they showed the actual teaser at Celebration. Yes, I know exactly the shot you mean. <laughs> yeah, so of course that could be from this shoot as opposed to actually filming the movie. But I'm guessing it's related to what we see in the teaser of Kylo coming towards Rey and the TIE Fighter and and whatever happens next. Yeah. So something's going on here that relates to the movie. So that's exciting. Exactly. And I must say, Kylo's cape is whipping around him in beautiful fashion. Very Byronic looking, mm -hmm. which, again, I appreciate. Um, and, yeah, they're just gorgeous, gorgeous covers. And I like having single character covers as well, because... I actually, no, that's wrong. For The Last Jedi, they obviously had a single character cover that was for Leia, and that was beautiful. And I think that was the best cover they had from the selection of Last Jedi ones. But I adore these ones because it just makes it feel so much more powerful and focused when it's just that one character and just really allowing you to focus on their expression and what their stance is saying and everything. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, I think the evolution of the covers through the trilogy um, doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the story, obviously. But if you look back at like the TFA cover, it was Rey, Finn, Han, Chewie in the Falcon, right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of a good laying out of what they wanted to present in that first movie. Um, Kylo nowhere to be seen except that one image of Adam on Starkiller Base. And he was unmasked in it, to be fair, yeah. um, being followed around by the stormtroopers in what I assume would have been like the deleted scene of him going to the Falcon. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, very much presented as the villain, separate from the heroes, because obviously they didn't want to spoil that he was Hanalea's son, or anything about the connection between Rey and Kylo Ren. And then for the second movie, we got what reflected the story there, that you had all these subplots with the characters breaking off and doing their own thing. But this is very much emphasising Rey and Kylo as the central figures of the story. Yep. Which I think has been clear in terms of how the story's been progressing, but... I think now they, they're emphasising that they want to push that in the, the marketing for this last movie. Yeah. No, I think that's all very true and it represents a gear shift even from what they were saying at Celebration because, yeah, at Celebration they were still very much making the point that the trio is together and we're going to see Ray, Finn and Poe together. To be fair, they didn't say if that was going to be like the main like aspect of the film or anything like that. But they did make that a key point of that presentation. Um, but yeah, now it does very much seem to be Rey and Kylo are the focus. And the author of the Vanity Fair article, um, Le- Lev Grossman, he gave a Reddit AMA. And as part of that, he was asked if anything surprised him about the process of writing it. And he said he expected to be writing more about Poe and Finn because he did interview the actors like Oscar and John but apparently the emphasis wasn't as much on those characters and their parts in the story as it was on Ray and Kylo so I do still think that Finn, Poe and Rose they're all going to be present and they're all going to hopefully have fleshed out parts and interesting contributions but I don't think they're going to be the figureheads in the way that Ray and Kylo are. Yeah well I think that makes sense for the third part because if you if you were to say Finn Poe and Ray are the central story, that mm. would imply that those characters have the central conflict, right? Yeah. And I mm-hmm. expect them to have a certain amount of conflict, especially given the kind of things that Daisy's been saying, um, we'll, we'll get to it later, but about how she feels kind of set apart from them because of her force sensitivity, which yeah. I think we called before because it's kind of classic for this type of story. Yeah. But yeah, like <laughs> this is kind of the emotional climax. So if you were to just have the emphasis on those three characters, you'd have something pretty intense going down between them. Whereas we want those guys to remain friends, right? Mm. I don't know how much they'd be able to pull from there. Because I know that Poe and Ray, presumably like a year or so has passed since the last movie. And obviously their relationship would have, they'd have gotten to know each other by now. But it would still kind of ring a bit false if the primary story was between Poe and Ray. <laughs> like that's not what things have been leading up to. So yeah. totally makes sense that we have what we have. Um, I'm just kind of kicking myself for like constantly telling myself to have lower expectations before this came out. Yeah. Maybe I was bracing myself for another romance gate. <laughs> Do you remember last time? Definitely. Yeah, I'm kind of scarred from it. <laughs> Emergency podcast recording. <laughs> Ryan says there's no romance in The Last Jedi and it turns out that actually there was a kiss. People kissed. There was romance. Yeah. No, we definitely didn't have anything to worry about. Yeah, I was the same. Like I was really like preemptively nervous for this to come out. I was looking forward to it. I was really excited, don't get me wrong. But I was bracing myself for shit to hit the fan. <laughs> Sorry to be crude, but I genuinely was. And yeah, it was such a wonderful surprise to see how they actually went with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure it has hit the fan for some people, presumably people who have a very different reading and a different desire for the outcome of the story than we do. Yeah. But yay for us. 
<laughs> just to be, just being honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. This this made me very happy, and and not just the covers, even though that's what we've been talking about, but the actual contents, the rest of the photos. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of stuff here, so very exciting. And I think that's the perfect segue to allow us to start talking about the other photos. We could keep talking about these covers, to be honest. They're so gorgeous. Like, Oh, we could. Maybe we can do a spotlight on them. <laughs> I already changed my phone wallpaper and lock screen again. I couldn't choose between them, obviously, so I have them mm-hmm. both. Excellent. Yeah, just very well fed. I presume you're going to be buying both covers. I don't know. It's really hard because last time everyone was kind of separated. So I was like, oh, if, okay, I'm going to get the layer one. But, oh, it was hard. But now I'm like, yeah, how can I choose? Maybe I do have to get both. But then that feels really silly. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be the same inside. I'm quite lucky because I actually have a Vanity Fair subscription. I'm cribbing off a former housemate who left and basically said I could have his Vanity Fair magazines because he didn't care. Um, so I'll get one of them through that and then I'll just buy the other one. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Me, che- me be cheating. <laughs> I wondered if they would have, because sometimes subscriber issues, they have a completely different cover, don't they? Yeah, that'd be really exciting, but I don't think they will. I think if okay. there was going to be a subscriber's cover, it would have been announced by now. True. So yeah, you'll, you'll get both. That's lucky. <laughs> it might just be whatever I can find, because sometimes you can't find all of them. Yeah, that's true. Although at least this time only there's only two, so hopefully that'll make it easier. Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's start running through these pictures. Well, talk to these uh, we'll talk about these to varying degrees because some of them have more interesting elements going on so the first one is captioned shooting stars director jj abrams sets up a shot of daisy ridley in jordan's wadi rum desert the setting for the planet basana in the desert says abrams there's something about the way the sand interacts with the light Oh, you're a true poet, JJ. I love you. <laughs> he is right, though. Like, those scenes in The Force Awakens were absolutely gorgeous. Oh, they really were. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, we know that now that this is not Jakku, which mm-hmm. was kind of the, the favorite theory, I guess, along with Tatooine. Um, or even Jeddah, I saw as well, because of the mountains and rocks in the background. But um, yeah, it's somewhere entirely new. They just love deserts that much. Yeah. exactly (laughs) jj's fave and in terms of him being right about how beautiful it looks uh, he is totes right Uh because i went to see aladdin in the bfi imax in london today and that's the biggest cinema in the uk and they showed the trailer for the rise of skywalker before it in imax and it was so beautiful (laughs) (laughs) it really did look spectacular though especially that scene in the desert it was just gorgeous yeah also i just love ray's new costume i wasn't like completely sold on it at first especially when we started getting those little leaks i was like oh it kind of feels too similar to what she's been having before but now it just feels like the right next step Mm. um it feels just like a natural evolution and it's so just beautiful and flowing and i love the symbolism of the white and i love the fact that she has a hood now yeah, I really want to see her with that hood up, though. I don't know. Maybe it's because the, the photo is really small, so I'm kind of misinterpreting it. But JJ's face looks meme-worthy there. Like, it's almost like his jaw is dropping in awe of Daisy slash Ray's beauty <laughs> and badassery. <laughs> you mean like he's saying, like, damn, girl? Yeah, it's just like, wow, look at you. You go. <laughs> <laughs> Baby's all grown up now. <laughs> that must be what it kind of feels like to him. I mean, yeah. 
you know, he created this character, not by himself, but with other people. And I don't know, there must be like this weird sense of nostalgia, but for something that was only a few years ago. Yeah. And kind of bringing it all full circle. No, I think he must feel that sense of custodianship. So I think that's part of why he came back to him, because Mm -hmm. he's like, yeah, I kicked this thing off. I'm going to see it through. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if this is them filming those opening shots of the teaser because like based on her expression she again it's quite small but it looks like they could that could be what they're doing in terms of getting her close-ups it could easily be that because yeah it looks like she has that similar stoicism going on Mm. so yeah it's impossible to say because yeah it does it Well, that's a safe thing for them to show us as well, isn't it? Because we've already seen it to an extent. So we don't know the context exactly, but it's like, oh, okay, we're getting a behind the scenes look at that iconic moment in the teaser. So, Mm -hmm. And then we move on to another behind the scenes pick. And this one is J.J. Abrams, alongside stunt coordinator Eunice Huffert, directs the Knights of Ren, elite, fearsome enforcers of Kylo Ren's dark will. (laughs) So yeah, this is the first official confirmation that they're in the movie, though we've known for a long time, basically, that they were going to be in the movie. Um, And yeah, it's nice to see their costumes in such high quality. They look really badass. They do. I love it. They're so uniquely designed, but all fit together. Perfectly coordinated boy band. <laughs> exactly. Kylo's on vocals. Which like instrument would you attribute to the three guys in the foreground, Kirsty? Well, I swear the guy in the back looks like he's actually carrying a keytar. Like I thought this since we got the concept art for the Force Awakens. <laughs> <laughs> I can so see it. One of them looks like he's got an, a gun for an arm. Unless <laughs> unless his arm is just like slotted into that, but it's giving me serious like Mad Max vibes. Yeah. You know? Like the rogues in the desert kind of cobbled together like this weird I don't even know how to use it's not like steampunk, but you know, very DIY I mean they must be absolutely sweltering. Yeah, I feel really sorry for the actors in those costumes. It looks like absolute torture. Yeah, and I'm wondering who is in those costumes because course we don't have any cast announced for the knights of ren so is it like are they named characters are they going to have speaking parts are they casting people who we know or Mm. is it like people who are known primarily for like their stunts like i'm really curious about this my mind is leaning towards the latter going towards like stuntmen but yeah we'll have to see because it could be either like matt smith might be in one of those costumes (laughs) But yeah, no, they look amazing, really cool. I also like what JJ seems to be doing. I get the sense that he's perhaps like doing body language that he then wants the actors to emulate. Oh, maybe. Kind of like loping. Yeah. Because they have to with the weight of those costumes and those huge weapons. Like, they're not going to be very agile, really, are they? <laughs> well, they shouldn't be. Maybe they will be because Star Wars, whatever. But it's got this real heaviness to it. Um that yeah. will contrast if they come into contact with characters like Finn and Poe. Like, yeah. Yeah. Just, I'm, I'm so interested to see how big a role these guys play. Yeah. Like, I'll make a very early prediction that is based on nothing. You know that scene in the trailer where Poe and Finn are like on a barge and they're mm-hmm. like fleeing from something and they seem to be in like a firefight? I reckon that's with the Knights of Ren. 
that's what I thought too. They'd be like chasing them. Yeah. And they're all they're all looking for something together, and that's why they're all on this planet. But I don't, yeah, like you say, it's kind of just based on slotting things together in your mind that because we have such little information to go on, it's natural to do that. Um, yeah. But wouldn't be crushed if that turned out not to be true because. <laughs> yeah it's kind of nice to look at things like this and like not really have any stakes in it but just Mm. be like curious and looking forward to hearing more exactly i think it also fits into that whole mad max thing you know like people in fast moving vehicles furiously chasing each other through a desert yeah i think that like lodges in our minds as an appealing concept so yeah and i wouldn't be surprised if that was an influence because that's been an incredibly resonant movie of the last few years you know Mm -hmm. like there's there's still so much to say about that movie and not just the story but like the cultural iconography of it the visuals are so striking that i I wouldn't be surprised to see if that jj saying that like that that was an influence for him agreed i love that movie it's so good (laughs) okay cool let's go to the next picture which has this caption Vanity Fair reveals Kerry Russell as the masked scoundrel Zori Bliss, seen in the thieves' quarter of the snow-dusted wild Kijimi. And yeah, this costume, man, this costume is the absolute best. It's so good. Yeah, it's wonderful. It feels like something out of the prequels. Yeah. You know? Like, it's... But I know I've seen a lot of people be like, maybe she's going to be kind of the Boba Fett of this movie. But I, I don't think so. I think there's hopefully more interesting stuff going on here. I'd like to think that if you cast Kerry Russell, you give her more to do than just look really cool. Yeah, I mean she can do so much more, and I'm JJ knows that he's worked with her. So obviously she she is amazing at the action sequences, but she's also an amazing actress. So hopefully they're using that. Um, but yeah, this costume is just so striking. I really want to get the art book to hear more about the evolution of this. A hundred percent. Because yeah, so far, based on what I've seen from The Rise of Skywalker, I think I'm kind of getting the vibe that it might have my favourite like costume designs and character designs out of the whole sequel trilogy. Yeah. Like, and I do love the previous movies too. There just seems to be something extra to this like there's an added oomph which makes me excited yeah i think also it's you know aside from like the canto bite stuff we haven't seen an awful lot of the galaxy in terms of its wider cultural ongoings and you know the prequels were so good at world building Mm -hmm. that was like where the setting was it was supposed to be amongst people on coruscant um, which we didn't get in the original trilogy, and now I feel like this is kind of a merging of the two, mm-hmm. um, which is really exciting because you want to get a sense of what else is going on in the galaxy. You want to get a sense of like the kind of fashions that are out there, and this is badass. Like that helmet is so interesting. Yeah, it's super cool. I also love the description of her as a masked scoundrel. Mm-hmm. So that suggests someone of perhaps dubious morality. Um, which is interesting. It makes me wonder if she's going to be the DJ of this movie. And yeah, there's obviously the question mark over is she going to help or hinder the heroes or perhaps do both? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Scoundrel, you think of characters like Han and Lando. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm assuming that because we had DJ in the last movie, they're not going to do the whole, oh yeah, they're working together and then she betrays them thing. So maybe it goes the other way. 
Mm. Or they're just not quite sure. Like maybe she's left as a bit of an enigma, like a Kira kind of scenario. I like that. I'm all about morally ambiguous female characters. Hmm. But she's in the thieves' quarter, so it's like, do the other characters find her there? Are they looking for her specifically? Does she find them? Hmm. I wonder perhaps if this could be a situation where Lando hooks the main characters up with Zori. Hmm. Like, because I'd presume that Lando would have contacts in that sort of environment. But again, that's pure spec, so mm-hmm. could be nothing. But I think it's possible. Yeah. Anyway, very cool to finally get a look at her. Exactly. We have seen like a few leaked images of Zori, but this is the first high-quality image we've seen of her, and it's the first time we've had her surname confirmed. Zori Bliss. <laughs> Such a, cool a good name. name. It really is. I saw someone say reminded them of like a porn study. Oh yeah, I was thinking like that's my stripper name. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Like, which I should hate it, but it's like actually I no, kind it's of love great. it. It feels that. yeah, it feels very Star Wars. It's great. Yep. Okay, and then we move on to another highlight image, which is Force Majeure, First Order leaders General Hux, Donald Gleason, and Allegiant General Pride Richard E. Grant on the bridge of Kylo Ren's destroyer. Okay, so many questions. This is another great on the nose classic Star Wars name, Pride. Mm, it really what could is. it mean? <laughs> I'm sure he's a really lovely, humble man. <laughs> Super sweet, an absolute doll. <laughs> um, but yeah, I look at this and I have so many questions because, to be honest, I was surprised to see Hux in this spread at all. I was not expecting to see Hux pictured. So it was a pleasant surprise. I quite like him. I find him very amusing. Um, and yeah, I just love how he looks like a really like sad, cowed little boy again behind um, General Pride. Yeah, so this Allegiant General title, is that supposed to convey that he's above Hux? I'll tell you what, I have a working theory slash headcanon, which is that despite Hux, Kylo created a new rank be- below Supreme Leader but above Hux. I <laughs> gave that. it to um, Richard E. Grant. That is my hope, and that is what I want to happen. That would be hilarious. I mean, you're right, <laughs> Hux does not look happy, but when has he looked happy? But no offence to Donal, because I don't think that Hux looks like Donal in real life. Donal is very very attractive young man uh <laughs> he looks just the way he can talk to his face is he's an amazing actor he just he looks like so bitter and <laughs> prematurely aging because of the stress of his position and yeah i'm glad about it because Huck sucks <laughs> <laughs> i think kylo thinks the same kirsty <laughs> yeah, so you're on the same page as your fave um but yeah, I'm really, really curious to see what the dynamic is going to be like between these two. So it basically reintroduces that whole like father slash authority figure, mm. but pretty much only for Hux, because I don't for a minute think that Kylo is going to be like intimidated by this man. No. Like, he's clearly under Kylo. It's kind of like a Tarkin Krennic thing almost, isn't it? Perhaps, yeah, just with more daddy issues thrown in. <laughs> well, sure. I mean... <laughs> I don't know how explicitly it's going to be that way because I, I, we saw all of those funny like clickbait articles coming out theorizing that Richard E. Grant's character was Hux's dad. Oh no! Which of course, if you're familiar with the new canon, you know that's not true, yeah. um, and you know that he has a different fate. Um, but 
I guess I I can see why people might think that from this image because it's like awkward family portrait. <laughs> um, and it does position them as having this dynamic that you're going to see this conflict between these two because there's no way they get on, right? Unless, I really doubt it. <laughs> oh, unless they're plotting together to overthrow Kylo. Mm, possible. That would be interesting. Like, I just... I'm not sure how well Hux plays with others, basically. Oh, yeah. And I think even if that were the case, it still wouldn't be like their best buddies. It would still be like a looking out for myself scenario. Yeah, sure. It's like, it's going to also be a generational thing because Hux was obviously this young child when the Empire fell. And Pride, he looks old enough to have been an Imperial officer at that time. He was probably already an adult. It's almost like a another riff on that Kennedy thing that we got at the very beginning of The Last Jedi, but was short-lived. Exactly. So if our theory that Allegiant General Pride is above Hux, if that theory is correct, then I imagine we're going to see a situation where that older, more established authority figure is going to be asserting himself over Hux and his upstart ways. And I think that can only lead to conflict between them, unless they decide there's a greater enemy. (laughs) I can't wait. That's going to be so funny. I love Richard E. Grant. I know we've talked about that. We both love him. Yeah. Um, Very excited to see this character. And I think he will have enjoyed playing it so much that you're just going to feel that in the performance. He's really going to go for it. Exactly. And like, he's a really sweet, lovable, adorable man in real life, but he plays such good villains. Mm -hmm. And even in this picture, he's got such a great rest and bitch face. Like, so... Yeah, super, super psyched for him. And also that costume man is like oh, yeah. kimono style. It's, it's really very cool. interesting. Yeah, it's like a mix of what we would consider to be like the traditional Jedi robes um, mm. with the First Orders. I don't Ooh. think that means that he's a former Jedi or anything, but it's an interesting choice to kind of distinguish him from her. Yeah. And also, yet another theory... I have the very vague idea in my head that General Pride might perhaps have some link to Palpatine or might have some sort of role in bringing about Palpatine's resurgence. Again, Mm. because of the idea of him being part of the old empire and perhaps being around the the emperor. So we have that whole idea of the emperor having this contingency for what would happen in the event of his death. And I could see General Pride perhaps having knowledge of that and seeking to execute it. Again, that's wild speculation based on nothing beyond conjecture. But I I think that could be interesting and it might explain why they would bring in someone with that history and that lengthy experience with the Empire and the First Order, why they'd introduce that character at this stage. Yeah, no, I think that's possible because... I mean, we talked before about all the interesting stuff in like the Last Jedi novelization, um, about how Snoke was like aware of Palpatine, and there's this obviously linked history between how the First Order came about with Ray Sloan and everything, um, and Hux's father, and then what it's led to be, and like what even its goals are beyond restoring the Empire, if that's the only thing, and by extension, the Emperor himself which we didn't think was possible until we heard him cackling in the teaser. And now it feels like all that stuff's back on the table um, mm. in terms of like there being actual living people within the First Order maybe secretly having allegiances to Palpatine rather than Snow. Mm. Oh, so good. Because, I mean, there's still some mystery around that, of course. Like, 
whether Snoke was aware of what was going on with Palpatine, whatever it is, or if he thought he was dead and gone and it, he was going to be the new Emperor. Um, yeah, it's hard to know what to make of it, but it feels like anything's possible at this point. Yep. Agreed. <laughs> cool. So then the next image is another behind-the-scenes shot. So Desert Power. Eunice Suatamo, Chewbacca, Ridley, Anthony Daniels, C-3PO, and John Boyega, Finn, await the call to action for a chase scene. And this one seems to me like it might be prepping for that shot in the trailer or something adjacent to that. Because am I right to think that ship behind John looks similar to the barge in the trailer? I think so. It's hard for me to tell because it's like you see it for a split second. Mm. But also Poe was in that scene too, right? I mean, Oscar might just be out of frame here, but... um... Yeah, and Ray wasn't on the barge. Yeah, well, we didn't see her. Yes. Maybe there's more than one chase scene, or maybe like in the middle of the chase scene, they somehow get separated, or because yeah. she has the staff at that point, and then there's another scene we see at some point where you've got Finn and Poe, and Finn is carrying her staff. Mm. Yeah, I feel like they maybe unintentionally get separated throughout this part of the movie. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's very possible. Um, I could also see it being a situation where. Ray's like, in relation to Kylo, I'll lead him off! And then, yeah, leads him off and allows the others to escape, perhaps pursued by the Knights of Ren. Mm. Again, this is like weaving head cannons and stuff. Um, but yeah, part of why I love these photos so much is because they're reinforcing to me the fact that I really have no idea how this all plays out and how it all fits together. Like, I feel completely disorientated in terms of when we're going to which planets and that sort of thing. And I like that sense of disorientation because, yeah, really it should be for the movie to reveal that to us. Yeah, me too. I just like that we have all of this stuff to speculate on now. Official mm-hmm. stuff. Um and I'm kind of putting whatever leaks have come before it out of my mind and just focusing on official stuff now that it's coming out. Yep. Because it's just more interesting to look at the... St- I mean, the photos are beautiful. Um, they're laying everything out. It's just we don't quite know, as you say, how it all fits together, but that's part of the fun. Exactly. And we can feel fully sated for the moment anyway. Let's see how <laughs> we're doing in a month when there hasn't been anything else. Well, won't... There'll be more stuff coming out from like Comic-Con and that, right? There Maybe. will. Maybe. Comic Con isn't until July, though. So yeah. let's see how well we do with holding on <laughs> until then. <laughs> um, okay. Then the next one is a shot of C3PO. Hot take. Members of the crew, Shade and Shine Daniels, the only cast member to appear in all nine, nine of the Skywalker films, while BB 8 looks on. And yeah, there's not much to say about this one. It doesn't give anything away whatsoever, but it's a cool shot. And. Anthony Daniels must be suffering in that costume, super oh, hardcore. Yeah. I do like that um, it's clear now that BB-8 is going on the mission too. So I wasn't quite sure, it, was that confirmed at some point and I've forgotten again? Um, I don't recall it being explicitly confirmed. I think it might have been assumed, but okay. I don't remember anything about people definitively saying BB-8 is also on this mission. Right, and I guess that means that Dio is probably somewhere around too. So you've got... Mm-hmm. So, hmm, where's R2? But you've got all these other droids there. So it's it's pretty packed party going on this mission, whatever it is. It's a lot yeah. of them all together. It seems that everyone congregates on Persana. Hmm. 
Yeah, I wonder where R2 is. Yeah. Poor baby R2. Always gets left out. I like seeing 3PO and R2 together. <laughs> They've got that funny dynamic. Yeah. No. I feel like it is a fair point to make that R2-D2 perhaps hasn't had as many moments to shine in this sequel trilogy as in the originals, which makes sense because obviously they're always going to take a backseat to the new droids, but yeah, hopefully R2-D2 gets a few glory moments. Yeah, because I, I wonder like if he's not here, does that mean he's back at the base with Rose or what? I mean, it'd be great to see Rose interacting with Droid as well because she's got that mechanic background. Yeah. I know there's a favourite fan theory out there that Rose makes Dio herself. Ooh, I like um, that. Yeah. That would be cool. So the next picture is one of my favourites. Oh my god, it's so gorgeous. It's amazing. Horsing around. Finn and new ally, Jana, Nomiaki, atop hardy Orbacks, lead to the charge against the mechanised forces of the First Order. It's extremely surreal to be in it, says Aki, and see how it works from the inside. And this is just such an amazing dynamic image. I love them. And Jana especially just looks so completely badass it's wonderful yeah that's another really great costume i think you're right that this this could be like the best movie of the sequels in terms of costume design Mm. you just immediately get a sense of where people are coming from and yeah this just has this real epic feel and if they're talking about them leading the charge against the mechanized forces i do like how that reaffirms a lot of the themes like that are with star wars from the beginning in terms of like the industrialized technologically advanced versus the natural the what we consider more human um emotional i mean that's right at the core of like luke versus vader right mm-hmm. so pretty cool to have that again just in different guises and these creatures look really awesome too yeah i guess it's like sort of equivalent to the whole thing with ewoks versus the empire in return mm-hmm. of the jedi like the like simple like forces of like people coming together overcoming this huge threat um which yeah it's like super intense stalls like it's mm-hmm. pure stalls um, <laughs> and yeah i love that jana's using a bow and arrow i think that's really cool like like beyond the ewoks i don't think we've really seen that sort of weapon being used so it'll be really cool to see a human character using that weapon because mm-hmm. come on bows and arrows always look awesome <laughs> pretty much always anyway and i love how like confident and heroic finn looks in his stance he looks like he is completely together which fits in with everything john has been saying about where finn is at this point and yeah, I love the like space horses thing and how they have like the tusks. Yeah. And the war paint, it's just awesome. It just creates a wonderful collective effect. Yeah, these horses almost have this like prehistoric feel. Yeah. With with the tusks there and their long matted fur and really striking. Um and like you, I'm so excited to see where Finn is at in this story because you're really going to see how far he's come since The Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. just yeah just from the images you can like have this sense of resolve and confidence that was not there at the beginning understandably yeah and then we'll move on to another highlight image <laughs> there are so many great images <laughs> in this it's ridiculous and the best of all the captions um star-crossed <laughs> kylo ren adam driver and ray battle it out with lightsabers in a stormy confrontation their force connection 
What driver calls there? Maybe Bond will turn out to run even deeper than previously revealed. And yeah, this is just the most awesome image. Um, there's just an absolute downpour of rain surrounding them, or perhaps like a wave crashing behind them. I think it might be that rather than rain. Hmm. Um, but yeah, they're both completely soaked and trying to battle it out in what seem to be extremely perilous conditions. I'm sure there's a high risk of slipping in that environment. Um, and to me, this image is also notable. So it seems like the least posed of all of them. I'm sure it was still very posed and very carefully calculated. But do you know what I mean? If I say quite a few of them look quite photoshopped and like almost artificial, even though they're all still great looking. This one feels very natural. Like it is just a shot of them filming the movie. I know what you mean. Yeah, it has this dynamic, natural feel to it. Like they are just taking a, a a shot as they're filming it, as you say. But I don't, I don't know if that will turn out to be true. But it does have that feel. Um, yeah, obviously we don't know the context of it, but we were hoping to see Ray and Kylo duel again. Obviously under very different circumstances because their dynamic has evolved so much from that first movie. But it makes sense for them to be confronting each other again. Um, I guess I might need you to help me out with this, Rachel, because I'm kind of confused. They're talking about them having an even deeper force connection, but Ray closed that door, so I thought that was the end of it at the end of The Last Jedi. Um, Sorry, I'm just trying to think. Um, I'm confused too now. (laughs) Because I thought doors were able to close these spiritual connections that spanned the entire galaxy. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Like, there's no coming back from that, right? Right. The story was done there. Like, they're just going to, like, stare each other down? Yeah. There's no connection between them now, right? Like, that's the end of the story. At the end of Act 2, we all know that that's how the story ends. Maybe everyone just got really confused. Maybe they just meant to say and they really hate each other now. (laughs) The end. (laughs) (laughs) We're just messing with you guys. Don't do that. But yeah, it's just been kind of funny to, to see that as like that's been like a classic response to any terms of like speculation of how Ray and Kylo's dynamic would continue to evolve in Act Three of a story because of course it will evolve. But yeah, it's been this idea that like well, Ray decided to end things, so they're ended now, and there's no spiritual connection between these two characters, which it's nice to see confirmed has not any real basis in the actual story, but. People sure were confident about that. Yep. No, and this shows it's still very much going to be a big part of what's going on, which is awesome to see. Which totally makes sense, because I think JJ would have been nuts to throw that away. That was... I mean, even among people who did not love The Last Jedi, you'd still hear a lot of people going, well, the best bits by far were the Rey and Kylo Force Connection parts. Yeah. So, what, that and their fight with the Praetorian Guards. Like, that thread has been by far the most popular most well received part of that story so it makes sense totally to to continue to develop that yeah i think jj abrams is a smart dude and he knows what he has in terms of the character dynamics and the foundations and he's not going to throw away something with so much potential yeah and it's what he set up in the force awakens too exactly yeah it would just be super super dumb and he's clearly not going to throw it away so we're all good (laughs) um but yeah in terms of where they're actually battling i've seen a few ideas being thrown out when the earliest i saw was that it was the millennium falcon Mm -hmm. which 
I think is possible. But the one I lean towards the most and think is the most likely is their battling on top of the Death Star. Right. Um, the Death Star ruins, just to be clear, they're not in space. Um, <laughs> and I think that makes sense for several reasons. It obviously has that like mechanical industrial look in the part of it you see in the foreground. Um, the fact that it seems like there's a, a wave crashing over them, like slash rain, we can't be 100% sure, but that corresponds to the Death Star wreckage being in a stormy sea. And yeah, just the symbolism of that, it's just wonderful. Yeah, it does, I mean, yeah, like you say, it could just be heavy rain, but the amount that's sloshing around them, they must be absolutely soaked by this point. Uh, which I'm interested to see... Uh, they probably won't do this, but like, I'm just going to point out that Ray is wearing a white outfit, okay? <laughs> so, you know. Maybe, maybe he'll be a gentleman and offer his, her his cloak. In the middle of a duel. <laughs> the lady! Um, but yeah, I think you could be right. I think it could be the Death Star. And I wonder if it's like after, I mean, there's that bit at the end of the teaser before we hear him cackle. Mm -hmm. Um that Ray is coming up to that like precipice um, with the water there, um, Finn and Poe are behind her. But at that point, is it like, okay, this is, I guess we were talking earlier about they could be separated during that chase scene, but maybe this is where it's like, okay, I know what I have to do. You guys need to stay here or go off and do something else and not put yourself in danger. Mm. Um, I need to take Kylo on for myself. Yeah. But not sure how that then fits into Palpatine. So mm. maybe they're both there trying to get something. So they both like happen to turn up at the same point and they're like, not happy to see each other. So that <laughs> <laughs> they need to get work through some complex emotions. Yeah. Yeah. They need, they need to get all that anger out. Yeah. Each other, so. And yet it's interesting to me that they're showing an image from a duel between these characters as well, because that says to me that this is not a climactic event in the film. Again, I know what I'm saying is not going to be like earth-shatteringly like, shocking to you. It's worth pointing out, though, because I think that's that was like a key form of speculation early on after The Last Jedi, that it's like, well, okay, the only thing left is for those two characters to duel and have that climax between them. Um, kind of like Luke and Vader for for Return of the Jedi. Obviously, the Emperor was involved, but like it was mostly about Luke and Vader. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, this suggests that it's not because it's like they weren't going to show us the Praetorian Guard jewel at this point in the lead up to the Last Jedi. Yep. So exactly. So I'm guessing maybe end of Act One, perhaps, or the very beginning of Act Two, something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't want to, like, pin anything down because mm -hmm. the movie still seems so fluid in my mind, but I agree that it's it's not going to be, like, right at the end. Mm -hmm. And, like, well, I guess it could be. I shouldn't say never, but... <laughs> never say never, because... <laughs> yeah. But even, even if it was at the end, I think we don't have enough of the context to know why they're fighting or if anyone else is involved um, to be too confident about all that. But I just... Obviously, whatever is going on, it's going to be more than meets the eye right now. So, Precisely. Okay. And then another action slash behind the scenes shot. Sandblast. Camera operator Colin Anderson readies a take for a chase sequence spotlighting the heroics of Chewbacca, BB-8 and Rey. Okay. So 
So it looks like Ray's on a separate ship from Finn and Poe and C-3PO. That would make sense because we don't see Chewbacca and BB-8 on the like, other ship with Poe and Finn, do we? No, I don't think so. Yeah, okay, then that makes sense. So it seems like there's a big chase going on. Finn and Poe are in one ship, they're being chased. And then Ray and Chewbacca are in another ship and they're also being chased. Mm. So it's a question of who's chasing who. Like The logical guess would be that Kylo is chasing Ray, perhaps the Knights of Ren are chasing the others. But remains to be seen. And again, we have heard... I won't go into any detail, but we've heard very general rumours about there being a MacGuffin, everyone searching for and chasing. So I think that could potentially be feeding into this whole idea about, oh no, we need to get there first. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that could be part of it. Yeah. It does seem like there's more for Chewie to do this movie, I've got to say. If he's in all these different places and he's in the next photo that we'll talk about, um, which I'm happy about because... I really loved his little subplot with the Porgs in The Last Jedi. I loved him dropping Rey off to see Kylo on the Supremacy. Um, but he, he wasn't a major player. Which makes sense, you know, in a way. Like, he was sitting back and taking stock of everything that had happened with Han. It was also new. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it it seems to suggest that he's got more of a part to play in, in The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, definitely. He was basically just like supportive dad in The Last Jedi, <laughs> which was fun to see. But yeah, it will be nice to see the character be a bit more active. Mm-hmm. And yeah, on that note, to switch things up, would you like to read out the caption for the next picture, Kirsty? Sure. Punch it. In a historic reunion, Lando Calrissian, Billy Dee Williams, retakes the helm of the Millennium Falcon, joined by Poe Dameron, Chewbacca, Dio and BB-8. He's a survivor, William says of Lando. Such a nice image. I really mm-hmm. hope we get this set up in terms of who's operating the Falcon as well. I'd like to see that whole dynamic between Lando and Poe because they're both somewhat similar in certain ways. They're both like the dashing space pilots. And yeah, I think there'll be some nice banter and back and forth between them. Yeah, it makes me wonder what Lando will think of Poe. <laughs> <laughs> he like sees a bit of himself in him or is like oh these young kids they don't know what they're doing yeah he might even be a bit competitive with him <laughs> and i love the fact that his outfit is like a great blend of his solo and original trilogy looks yeah donald glover looks so good in the yellow so billy Dee does too yeah it's a great color like I love yellow it's underrated as a fashion choice <laughs> and yeah Billy Dee just looks like he belongs there so I'm really happy he's back mm-hmm. one thing I am noticing is the lack of porgs in the Millennium Falcon no <laughs> hopefully they were all rehomed oh yeah <laughs> I hope it's nothing more sinister than that <laughs> Well, we don't know how desperate the resistance became, you know, Ryan's got super low. (laughs) I feel like that was nipped in the bud with Chewbacca's subplot in The Last Jedi. (laughs) Porgs are not food. (laughs) Even Rey, who's been starving on Jakku, did not eat a porg, so. They could do like a one-off, like like either a book or like a one-off special for like Disney Plus, where it's like protecting the porgs from like the carnivores in the resistance. (laughs) I'll write it if no one else wants to. I'll write a script. But yeah, I wonder who else is on the Falcon at this point, if anyone else. Because um, mm. just because they're not in the cockpit, Ray and Finn could be there in the background. 
Yeah, I do. I do like the way Dio is kind of like peeping out from behind Poe's seat. That's cute. Yeah, I'm very curious to see how like what function Dio is going to serve because like he's adorable. I love the look of Dio, but right now it's like, what are you going to do, dude? What do you have to contribute? I'm interested in utility here. Okay. I wonder if he's there as a foil to BB-8's character development because he was like the annoying little droid in The Force Awakens and now maybe he's grown (laughs) and he has to take the smaller droid under his wing. Yeah, in terms of like why the droid is in the movie, I'm 100% sure that's the reason. It's just in terms of what service can this droid provide to the Resistance. I'm being super mercenary at this point. (laughs) He's going to sell some toys. Kirsty, what are you doing? <laughs> Introducing real world logic into my space fantasy. <laughs> no, like? I like the idea of BB eight having a friend because as I was saying, like R2 and 3PO, you love that relationship in, yeah, in yeah. the originals, you know? So No, I also love it. I think like I'm just like, is Dio gonna be like the public announcement system or something? <laughs> you know, he's got like a megaphone head. I'm just trying to think about his utility in that sense. Hmm. Yeah, he's very DIY. So We'll he's got he's got to have some purpose because he will have been made for a reason but i guess they don't always spell out that kind of thing like in in the last jedi you get all these different bb units just like wandering around in the background but it's not clear what they're doing i demand a detailed history on each one including its movements and its purpose there'll be a tie-in book i'm sure <laughs> maybe we'll get like one of those cute little captions in the uh visual dictionary yeah and hopefully it'll be like a kiddies book, like BB-8 and Dio become friends. Something like that. There'd be room for lots there. Okay. Then the next one. Well met. Jordanian locals play the Aki Aki, natives of the planet Pasana. And yeah, again, the costume design. So badass. Yeah, this is really interesting because I, I guess it's a behind the scenes photo. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at, but you know, some of these are obviously alien characters, and some of them are human. Yeah. So is it like a multi-species society, perhaps? Yeah. Either that, or the ones where you can see their human faces—they're just not wearing the masks because it's a behind-the-scenes. That's what I was wondering. Um, but no, well, that doesn't quite make sense either, though, because you see that one in the end, she has she's wearing like goggles. Mm. So she looks finished in her costume. I'm assuming it's a she. I shouldn't really be assuming, should I? I think it probably is just like a multi-species society, which isn't unexpected. It might be like Akiaki isn't necessarily like the name of the, the name species. of the aliens. Yeah, it could be like the name of like the cult they follow or something like that. Mm. So they have quite like a culty, like mystical vibe to them in terms of what they're wearing. Like there's one in dressed in yellow, sat down in the foreground looks almost like they might be some sort of shaman or something it's like a meditative pose right like he looks like he's sitting cross-legged yeah exactly and i don't expect these characters to be explored in great detail but i'm sure we'll see the the heroes interact with them at some point Mm. and yeah i think it's a really great choice to have character designs like this in a desert setting as well because they're so colorful and vibrant and I think having that colour is really important when you are dealing with what is essentially quite a monotone desert world where everything is sandy, beigey, yellow. Yeah. So it's good to have diverse colours that stand out. Yeah, I feel like it really distinguishes this setting from Jakku. And I, I know people, be, and I'm sure we explored the idea before that like 
if it was going to be Jakku, then this would be like a very different section of the planet um, mm-hmm. where there would be more color and different communities. Um, because the Jakku that we saw in The Force Awakens is very like people kind of wearing similar to what Ray does, like a lot of like sandy, beige, brown, practical stuff that blends in. Um, and you get the sense that there's. I don't know, it's like very isolating. Everyone's out for themselves and just trying to survive. Whereas this feels more like an actual community. And if there is some kind of religious observance going on or a celebration, um, again, kind of fits into what we were saying earlier about this having a greater sense of world building culture that goes on outside of the actual conflict of the story. Mm-hmm. So the characters are kind of passing through <laughs> and presumably causing a bit of a ruckus. But yeah. But that adds to the texture, so. Precisely. Um, right. And then we're into the last few images now. <laughs> I can't believe we've spent literally an hour talking about them. But there is a lot to say, so I yeah. feel like it's been completely warranted. Um, yep, and the penultimate image. Encore. Composer John Williams conducting the Star Wars score, drawing on themes and motifs he has woven across four decades. I didn't think there would ever be a second film, he says. John Williams is so sweet. And it's also important to mention when describing this image is they've got a screen where they're projecting the movie and they've got a beautiful shot of Leia there. And yeah, she looks wonderful. Yeah, this is really interesting. Obviously, like it's kind of far away, so it's a bit hard to tell. I'm sure some people have blown it up and had more of a look. But um, it kind of looks like it could be footage from her filming at the end of The Force Awakens when she's like saying goodbye to Rey. I think that's exactly what it is. In terms of the framing and the expression, it looks like that scene. Yeah, but they've altered it to obviously look more in keeping with, um, well, not exactly, but like the different kinds of costumes that she was wearing across the trilogy in terms of The Last Jedi and her braided hair and stuff. Mm hmm. So yeah, this maybe fits with what we see in the teaser of her and Ray hugging. And what we've speculated could be a goodbye between them. Yeah. So it could easily be at the start of the film and she's wishing the heroes good luck on their mission. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's great to see John conducting already. Because I know we've talked about reports where like, he has started the writing and has like been working on the film. But this is like the first like proper hardcore evidence that, wow, yeah, he's actually recording the score already. And that makes it seem so much more tangible and real. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's awesome. Yep. Seems like things are running on schedule. So that's reassuring. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. not a Rogue One situation here with the composing. So Yeah, no, no more six week time limits. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then the final image. Would you like to do the honours with the caption, Kirsty? Mm hmm. From the ashes, Mark Hamill as Luke with R2-D2. Speculation is rampant about who will rise as the Skywalker of the movie's title and how that choice will reflect the way the world has changed since Star Wars debuted in 1977. So yeah, this is a very enigmatic image and it's generated lots of conversation. I have seen some people take it as support for the idea that Luke didn't actually die in The Last Jedi, which makes me sad for them Mm -hmm. because... That's a surefire way to set yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. Like, what do you get from this, if anything, Kirsty? Well, it it kind of looks, again, like a... I'm undecided, because at first I thought it was like a flashback again to that night at the temple, um, mm-hmm. when he approached Kylo and everything went wrong. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't look like that Luke. He looks older. 
Yeah. So, not sure what's going on. He definitely looks like the Luke that died um, at the end of The Last Jedi. Sorry, no, I'm using an inflammatory word choice. (laughs) He did. I mean, he ascended into the Force, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, he doesn't look like a Force ghost as we know them. Yeah, which my assumption is that that's just because it's a fashion spread. Right. So they haven't added the effect just because they want to show Mark Hamill properly rather than as like a translucent ghosty person, um, which makes complete sense. For me, it's mysterious why R2-D2 would be there like that in this scenario. Yeah, that's what's adding to the original idea of, like, oh, are they going to revisit that day again? Because mm. obviously R2 was there. But yeah, it doesn't quite fit together. But I think that's what they're trying to get people to think. Yeah. like, But I agree. I don't think it is that day that Ben Solo turned. Because if you look carefully in the foreground, you'll see there's lots of green plants. Yeah. Um, And like vegetation. And from what I remember of that scene where like Luke goes into Ben's hut, it looked very like barren and arid. There just certainly didn't seem to be any like plant life. So... I think it's somewhere completely different. And I have no idea what Luke is doing here, what R2-D2 is doing here. Has has R2-D2 ascended to the Force? Can (laughs) droids become Force ghosts? Who knows? (laughs) Yeah, lots of questions. And Mm -hmm. we'll we'll get answers, but probably not until the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm cool with it too. Right, so now we finish talking about all the wonderful photos that have, that Vanity Fair has blessed us with, we can move on to actually discuss the like main article that accompanied the photos. So as I mentioned before, the article's by Lev Grossman. And yeah, the article is extremely long. <laughs> so basically, we are not going to read out the whole thing or discuss the whole thing because we'd be here for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> as much as we love podcasting, I think it would test people's patience. So what we have done is we've highlighted some specific parts to talk about and discuss. And yeah, we'll read out these selected parts and then we'll pause and have a bit of a discussion after each one. But yeah, we would strongly recommend that you go and read the original article because it's really well written and interesting. It has lots of general stuff in it about the formation of Star Wars and how Star Wars fit like fitted into the political climate of the 1970s and how it's had to evolve to keep with the times and stuff and it's all really fascinating and worth reading but yeah for reasons of time we've had to be selective so yeah Kirsty, would you care to read out the first part that i have highlighted sure so this starts with a quote from jj Uh, He says, this trilogy is about this young generation, this new generation, having to deal with all the debt that has come before. Abrams also insisted on keeping to the analogue aesthetic of the original trilogy. Those aliens had to be latex and yak hair, not bits and bites, and everything possible was shot on location using film cameras, not digital ones. Even Lucas had abandoned that approach by the time he made the second Star Wars trilogy, but many fans consider those movies to be a cautionary tale. Ugh. Famously, the prequels were mostly green screen environments, Abrams says. And that was George himself doing that, and it ended up looking exactly how he wanted it to look. And I always preferred the look of the original movies, because I just remember when you're in the snow on Hoth, when you're in the desert on Tatooine, and when you're in the forest of Endor, it's amazing. If you put a vaporator here, there, all of a sudden almost any natural location suddenly becomes a Star Wars location. 
But the more interesting thing about The Force Awakens and its successor, The Last Jedi, written and directed by Ryan Johnson, was how they subtly complicated Lucas's vision. Thirty years have gone by since the ending of Return of the Jedi, during which time the newly reborn Republic became complacent and politically stagnant, allowing the rise of the reactionary Neo-Imperial First Order, whose origins we will learn more about in Skywalker. It was almost like if the Argentine Nazis had sort of got together and actually started to bring that back in some real form, Abrams says. Just like that, the rules of the Star Wars universe changed. It wasn't all over when the Ewoks sang. Obi-Wan Kenobi and all those boffins had died in vain. Even Hutton and Leia split up. It's all a little less of a fairy tale now. There's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> there is. And I don't agree with all of the premises. but Yeah, obviously some of it's a bit controversial, to put it mildly. Like the prequel bashing is perhaps not particularly welcome, but is worth including as part of the general narrative of this part of the article because it builds into the further argument. Um, but yeah, what most stands out to me is that I really like the acknowledgement of what the sequel trilogy does that is different because I feel like that has been lacking a lot in much of the mainstream discourse surrounding the sequel trilogy because even now after The Last Jedi you do still see a lot of discussion of how it's just repackaging the original trilogy basically. I see that line a lot and it gets quite tiring and it's annoying and frustrating and so I'm happy to see a different spin on it here. And I think in terms of information on the rise of Skywalker, it's most interesting to see that confirmation that we will learn more about the First Order's origins in the next film. Because I know that's something that a lot of people have wanted, and reading that actually makes me a bit firmer in my perhaps theories about Richard E. Grant's character and what role Pride might have. Because... Yeah, I think if there is a connection to Palpatine, we might see what purpose was being served by the formation of the First Order. Hmm. Yeah, I think the thing that I most disagree with in terms of these paragraphs is the ending when he says it's a little less of a fairy tale. I can mm. understand why someone would say that in terms of where we come into the story at the beginning of The Force Awakens. But actually, I think what they're doing is just telling a different kind of fairy tale. Yes. Um, with a very different central dynamic at the core between Rey and Kylo as opposed to Luke and Vader. Um, yeah. Which, yeah, won't go too much into because we've talked about it a lot and people who listen to us are probably aware of that. But uh, I feel like the sequel trilogy's tra- trajectory is following a very uh, conventional roadmap for a fairy tale. It's mm. just it's different from what came before. And it has to be because they had to kind of press reset um, if they're going to tell another story 30 years into the future after the happily ever after Return of the Jedi. But mm-hmm. I feel like at its core, Star Wars still has all of those same values. Um, yeah. We just haven't seen the last chapter yet. No, I agree. I think the reason for this perception of it is being like more cynical. I think it's perhaps because it does take those old characters who we saw serving those roles of like heroic protagonists in the old films, it takes those characters and it does complicate their lives and it does make them failures and really add complexity to them and challenge them in big ways. So it would basically be like writing Cinderella 2 and it's about Cinderella's daughter, but Cinderella and the prince divorced 
and their lives went wrong and then the daughter has to through her own story find some resolution and and a new happy ending and i think if you were halfway through that story of cinderella's daughter and you had that premise of everything having gone wrong with that prior generation that we're already attached to in love from previous stories then you would at that point in that story consider it to be quite cynical hmm yeah i guess i just wonder how people expect it to end then in that case i think it's just naivety and not like thinking far enough ahead about okay so what would the natural resolution to this sort of complex like slightly tortured story be like it's presumably not going to end on a note of tortured complexity (laughs) but yeah yeah, people struggle to see that until the story is actually over at which point hopefully it will all seem completely natural and right so yeah well jj saying this again about have the younger generation having to deal with all the debt that has come before it's similar to what kind of thing he was saying at celebration on the panel um Mm -hmm. between like the dark and the light of this younger generation coming together and facing the greatest evil Mm -hmm. um i do think that's been at the core of this trilogy from the beginning Mm -hmm. um and especially embodied in the characters of kylo ren and ray because Obviously, they've inherited different aspects of it in different ways, but they both feel the weight of the legacy of stuff that's come before. Um, Maybe Kylo in a more explicit way in terms of his familial legacy, um, in terms of both the dark and the light. And you can see Mm -hmm. that embodied in that very first scene of his when he's talking to Lor Santeco. Mm -hmm. But for Rey as well, like feeling like, okay, well, we need the Jedi back because that's the answer to the problem. And and Luke kind of resisting that idea and presenting her with something different and then by the end her choosing her own path mm. um, yeah I yeah I feel like all of that has been very clearly laid out and we've mm. seen that in the character development that so far and you'd expect to see it yeah no I agree did anything else stand out to you about this particular part of the article um and no well, is fine <laughs> well <laughs> I guess I just I can't help but roll my eyes a bit when they just can't help but dig the prequels a little bit. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose because we've been thinking about The Phantom Menace a lot lately, when people say, oh, the prequels are mostly green screen, it's like, actually, that's not entirely true, at least across all three movies. Yeah. No, exactly. And especially having seen like that Doug Chang presentation at Celebration, and seeing all the care and craft that went into like all the set pieces from The Phantom Menace and appreciating how CGI was just one component of many. It is a shame to see that like airbrushed out of history with narratives like this, but I think people are used to it now. It's just a little bit frustrating. Mm-hmm. Should we move on to the next quote that I have highlighted? Oh, so the, the context here is that we're talking about Carrie Fisher as Leia in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but then a strange thing happened. Abrams remembered that there was some footage of Fisher left over from The Force Awakens, scenes that had been changed or cut entirely, and he dug them up. It's hard to even talk about it without sounding like I'm being some kind of cosmic spiritual goofball, Abrams says, but it felt like we suddenly had found the impossible answer to the impossible question. He started to write scenes around the old footage, fitting Leia's dialogue into new contexts. He recreated the lighting to match the way Fisher had been lit. Bit by bit, she found her place in the new movie. 
It was a bizarre kind of left side, right side of the brain sort of Venn diagram thing of figuring out how to create the puzzle based on the pieces we had. Fisher's daughter, Billy Lord, appears in the movies as resistance officer named Lieutenant Connix, and at first Abrams deliberately wrote her out of the scenes in case it was too painful, but Lord said no, she wanted to be in them. And so, there are moments where they're talking, there are moments where they're touching, Abrams says. There are moments in this movie where Carrie is there, and I really do feel there is an element of the uncanny, spiritual, you know, classic Carrie, that it would have happened this way, because somehow it worked, and I never thought it would. Yeah, this adds a little bit more detail to what we'd previously known about Carrie's part in the film. Um, So yeah, it's really interesting to see JJ talk about it so frankly here. Um, I think the biggest new thing is about how we're going to see Leia in scenes with Connick's, um, which is really interesting. I think in The Force Awakens, we see Connick's with Leia very briefly, like perhaps Connick's delivers a message or reads out some or reads out something from a piece of machinery, something like that. I don't remember anything particularly substantial between them, but it would be really nice if we get like a deeper moment of connection between those characters, because, yeah, obviously, Carrie and Billy. Yeah, I think at the end of The Last Jedi, it's it's Connix who says that um, she's talking about like the the codes that they're using to send out messages to other people elsewhere in the galaxy and that mm. they've gone but they're just not responding yeah um and obviously she's, say- she's saying that to the room but it's leia who obviously responds so um yeah be really interesting to see what level of interaction they have here and that jj chose originally not to have them interact at all so you wonder like how much that might have changed the story when billy said actually she really wanted that mm. yeah i can't imagine that there would be anything earth-shatteringly significant going on between Leia and Connix, but who knows, we will see. And if there are like any emotionally resonant moments between those characters, I think it would be really special to have those in this next movie. Yeah, because like, I guess I kind of figured, like, we'd again, we'd assumed that it's Leia and Rey hugging goodbye when Rey goes off on her mission, so presumably that means that Leia is staying at the base... And then I'd kind of assumed that Connix and Rose would be together a lot at the base because, like, we've seen pictures Dominic Monaghan's posted of, like, Billy and um, Kelly hanging out. And that could just be that they're friends in real life, obviously. Yeah. Um, But it could also be that they've spent a lot of time filming together. So it would almost be weird then if Leia's at the base of Connix, but then, like, never crossing paths if Leia's having these scenes with Rose or whoever else there. So... This feels like a more natural fit, based on what they're telling us. Right. Then I'll have a shot of reading the next bit, so pray for me. (laughs) Um, Kylo probably isn't capable of actual happiness, but things are definitely looking up for him. By the end of The Last Jedi, he has taken control of the First Order and killed or at least outlived his actual father and both of his symbolic fathers in art, Luke and Supreme Leader Snoke. Sources at Disney also confirm that his long-rumoured Knights of Ren will finally arrive in Skywalker. And then he has been forging this maybe bond with Rey, Driver says, and it kind of ends with this question in the air. Is he going to pursue that relationship? Or when the door of her ship goes up, does that also close that camaraderie that they were forming? Hmm. Kirsty, what do you think? I think this section is written really funnily because... 
it's almost as if Kylo's happiness would be tied to him becoming supreme leader, which we know is not the case. Yeah. Because by the end of The Last Jedi, he looks pretty miserable with his choices and the consequences of those. Yeah. Um, so it's not like, yay, I'm supreme leader now. That's what <laughs> I wanted all along. And that's now what's making me feel happy and fulfilled. It's Star Wars. No one on the dark side feels happy and fulfilled unless they're like Palpatine. Yeah. It's suffering. <laughs> it's loneliness and agony. This whole article is interesting because it has moments of like quite revealing insight and like interesting parallels and lots of good context setting. But it also has what I'd consider to be blunders with certain things. And yeah, saying that Kylo's life is looking super great because he's supreme leader. That's either ironic or a deep misunderstanding of the story. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it's like, hey, he's killed Han and, and Luke and Snoke are gone now, so he should be happy. It's like, well, yeah, I guess, like, from Kylo's perspective, those were his goals. So he was like, why am I not happy at this point? But of course, that's like a classic villain on a redemptive arc point where they get what they think they wanted all along. And of course, it's like, wait, something's still missing because now I want that other thing and that genuine connection I had with the beautiful girl. Yeah. Uh, oh no, I need to do some soul searching here. So <laughs> I think that's where we're at. But um, yeah. And and that, and that again, that's what Adam's alluding to in that quote. Yeah. I like that he's clearly putting that out there as a question. Is he going to pursue that relationship? So it'd be so hilarious if the answer was like, nah, can't nah. be <laughs> It's too much like hard work. You don't pose the question if it's not at all where the story was going. It's like when you know people discussing ad nauseum the possibility of Ben Solo's redemption. The fact that we're discussing it means that it's probably going to happen because we're villains yeah. who have no chance of redemption. It's not presented as a possibility. It's not foreshadowed in the text, unless you have like writers who want to subvert for the sake of shocking people. But I yeah. don't think that's what they're doing with Star Wars. So uh, could be wrong, but. The fact that these things are being floated as possibilities by the people making these stories. There's always this idea that like, oh, they can't tell us anything. But really, I think the broad strokes of the story are being quite spoon-fed and broadcasted. Yeah, no, this, that's a good point about they would let really let us know if like the villain was actually a villain and was going to stay a villain. Because this morning I watched the live-action Aladdin that's just been released. And I'd actually recommend it. It was far better than I was expecting. And I don't think this is a spoiler because the plot is almost identical to the cartoon that came out an obscene amount of time ago now. Um, and yeah, the Jafar in the live action version, he's played by an attractive young man, which some people have said about Kaido, oh, it's meaningless and stuff. And it's like, yeah, fair enough. But in Aladdin, unlike Kylo, you do not for a minute feel like, oh, poor baby Jafar, oh, I feel so bad for him. Oh, he's so conflicted. You do not get conflict from that character. You get someone who knows he's bad, he wants to be even badder, and that's his goal, to be super, super bad. And there's no, like, tortured scenes of him, like, crying or, like, mourning over his situation and everything he's lost and this sort of thing. It just doesn't factor into that story because that's not the story they're telling whereas you do get all that stuff with kylo because well apparently that is going to feed into the story they're telling because if he just stays an evil unrepentant badass it's like well that was a big waste of time then wasn't it (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. So the the mix of this paragraph is it's interesting, like I say, because like so where's the editorializing coming from versus the actual quotes, and they seem to be at odds with each other. So um, unless yeah, unless he's intentionally mm-hmm. setting up that juxtaposition, of course, because I do think the um, the writer sees Kylo as an an anti-hero with some of those Byronic qualities in some way, but maybe he's just kind of like setting the scene as like maybe what you're supposed to think at the end of The Last Jedi. Yeah, no, I think that's it. And I do think there's a healthy dose of irony there. I don't think this guy's stupid. Okay, cool. Care to read out the next quote, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. Presumably whatever's eating at Kylo started in his childhood. Maybe being the kid of literally the two coolest people in the galaxy isn't as fun as it sounds. Driver, who has obviously thought this through with a lot of rigour, points out that, as cool as they are, Han and Leia are both obsessively committed to lifestyles, smuggling, rebelling, that don't leave much room for kids. He also points out that, unlike Luke and Rey, Kylo never got to go on a nifty voyage of self-discovery. Instead, he grew up under the crushing pressure of massive expectations. How do you form friendships out of that? Driver says. How do you understand the weight of that? And if there's no one around you guiding you, or articulating things the right way, it can easily go awry. By the emotional logic that governs the Star Wars universe, and also our own, Kylo Ren is going to have to confront the past and his fears, whatever they are, or be destroyed by them. Okay, This is a good paragraph, but it's also one that's (laughs) going to enrage lots of people. (laughs) Well, I don't know why, because it's kind of similar to what they've been saying all along. Like, I think even in The the Force Awakens behind the scenes, JJ and Adam were both talking about Kylo's past and how difficult things were growing up with Han and Leia, who weren't always there for him. Um, The weight of that legacy. Like, it's all there textually and behind the scenes. So Mm. I say it's going to enrage people because I remember how people reacted to it when he said it before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again... At a certain point, I'm like, why are you fighting the story that's being told? Again, it's because of that whole thing that I was saying about what if you did a story about Cinderella's daughter and you had it where Cinderella and the prince went all wrong. Is because people don't like to see chinks in the armour of their heroes. Like, And again, I know we know this and it's a very tired like thing to say because we've been through it again and again but it bears repeating because I know for a fact that all the same discussions and debates are going to come up about how oh can you how can you tarnish the legacy of Han and Leia like this how can you blame them for what happened to Ben Solo and it's not I don't necessarily think it is about that them. I don't think it is either I think it's just about trying to have empathy for how it would feel to be the son of those people and I think that's confused with blame and shaming like the parents of that child and I don't think that's the intention at all. Yeah, I don't think that's what they're doing. I don't think JJ or Adam have blamed Han and Leia as characters. It's just that he's growing up in very different circumstances to Luke, Rey. Um, Yeah, and I think it's very interesting that they point out that Kylo never had the chance for his hero's journey of like discovering who he was because it was pretty boxed in who he was. Um, even without knowing through his early years that Vader was his grandfather, just the weight of the legacy from Han and Leia as the rebellion heroes, um, and then Leia committing her life to politics. Again, these aren't bad things, they're admirable things. But in terms of thinking about what it would be like to grow up as a child under 
the weight of that legacy. I mean, we see this in real life, right? People grow up with pressures and expectations from their parents. Yeah. And they don't no, get a chance to really figure out who they are. Yeah, I think that might be the most distinct point that's made in this section of the article. Um, because, yeah, it is a very, it is a point worth making that, yeah, Kylo probably doesn't have that strong sense of who he is still. Like, and I think he hoped to attain that feeling of identity by rising to this high position and becoming supreme leader. And my expectation is that a big part of the plot of the rise of Skywalker is going to be him realising I'm still lost. I still don't know where I need to go with this. So this clearly isn't my end game. This isn't what I was meant to attain. So what is? And then that's presumably where his connection with Ray comes in. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it feels like the foundation to a really satisfying arc as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I'm waiting to see that sweet, sweet execution. <laughs> Me too. Right, so now we're going to transition onto the part of the article that starts to talk about Rey. If Kylo Ren can't be redeemed, it will almost certainly fall to Rey to put him down like a mad dog. No. (laughs) Sorry. Like a mad dog is from me, and I think I might have unconsciously stolen that from Jenny Nicholson, so sorry. In spite of their maybe bond... Their relationship is the closest thing the new trilogy has to a star-crossed love story on the order of Han and Leia. A source close to the movie says that their force connection will turn out to run even deeper than we thought. They're uniquely suited to understand each other, but at the same time they are in every way each other's inverse, down to Kylo's perverse rejection of his family, which is the one thing Rey craves most. I think there's a part of Ray that's like, dude, you fucking had it all. You had it all, Ridley says. That was always a big question during filming. You had it all and you let it go. Again, this is a sentiment that we've seen expressed before. Um, and I think it ties back to that image of them having that lightsaber fight. Because in Star Wars, a lightsaber fight is never just a lightsaber fight. It's about working through emotions and feeling t- feelings towards each other. And I think at the start of the movie, or at least the first time she sees Kylo again, Rey is going to have lots of baggage to deal with in terms of this unresolved anger towards Kylo for his choices, which have been pretty uniformly bad. (laughs) Um, And yeah, also the direction that their own relationship went in in The Last Jedi, because I can only imagine that Rey must feel completely betrayed and like understandably very upset and angry about Mm -hmm. everything that he did yeah i think this echoes stuff that we saw established in the force awakens and then explored in the last jedi with kylo saying things like um oh han solo you feel like he's the father you never had he would have disappointed you and ray not quite grasping that because of course he doesn't elaborate and go into the sad backstory um but yeah, I, I just think this is all stuff that they've been working towards throughout the trilogy, which is hugely reassuring because it's very central to that, as they call it, that inverse relationship, that mirror, um, the idea of Kylo being her shadow and animus, um, and that they they both want the same things, but they come from very different circumstances and they're trying to resist that. Um, 
and they're not ready to accept each other for who they really are. They've got these like, especially Ray, understandably for Kylo, she has this like idealized version of how things were going to go post throne room. And he did too, to an extent. He thought, okay, well, she's on her own. She's isolated just like me. It'll be enough for us to be together, even if we're in the first order. And she's like, actually, no, because that's a bad call. <laughs> so yeah, they need to work through that and figure out where where things go from there for them. Um, but yes, it's very nice to see it described as the star-crossed love story of this trilogy, because it's been years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of us, of us beating this dead horse, and maybe people are starting to accept that. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I think more people are starting to accept it. Let's settle for that right now. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, it's the author's editorialising. It's not like a direct quote from anyone involved with the movie, but I'll take it. I'm happy to see that in a big publication like Vanity Fair because it's such a dramatic shift from where we were with the last Vanity Fair coverage for The Last Jedi, where it was treated like a fan invented romance. And yeah, it was just generally like presented with scorn and derision and look where we are now so yeah we've come a long way christy i know it's very emotional yeah (laughs) (laughs) back when we were doing those early episodes and we're like hello is anyone listening we think this is the story (laughs) we we have something really serious to tell you we're i'm sorry (laughs) they're gonna fall in love and kiss and he's gonna be redeemed and some some of you won't like it, and some of you will hate us for saying it, but it's true, sorry. I know this is really controversial, but like, <laughs> Ray and Kylo might have an emotional bond. Yeah, there's some kind of like intense force connection going on there that Ryan's probably going to explore and develop. Has this like star-crossed quality to it. I hope people enjoyed that flashback to episode four of Scavenger's Order. <laughs> I think it went on for a while because for such a long time we really did just have that first movie to go on mm. um i mean even after the last jedi it's not enough for some people as we've said so i think they've they've made it pretty much clear yeah. you can understand if you don't want it to go that way of course it must be difficult so exactly and everyone brings different perspectives and baggage to it mm-hmm. okay the next part ray seems ready for it all or as ready as anybody could be it's nice having that shot at the beginning of the teaser, Ridley says, over avocado toast at a fancy Chicago hotel, because I think it's quite a good visual representation of where she is now. Confident, calm, less fearful. It's still sort of overwhelming, but in a different way. It feels more right, less like inevitable, and more like there's a focus to the journey. And yeah, there's not as much to say about this as there has been about the other stuff, but I just wanted to read it out because... I love that description of how, what that first shot of the teaser represents because what Daisy is describing here is pretty much what I was getting for it, just purely on a visual level. Me too. She did not seem scared. Um, she seems calm and resolute. Yeah, which I really appreciate because if you think about the contrast between that and how the the Last Jedi's teaser opened with her gasping and what we know now she just had that experience like feeling the force and then like with sensing the darkness that was coming from the cave and then Luke reprimanding her it's kind of just her by herself now 
and we, we hear Luke talking to her, but it is again emphasizing we've passed and all we know, and this is your fight now. Mm-hmm. So she's had that development. For the final part, Kirsty, it's all from JJ, and there's one additional quote from him that's kind of separate, but it really does follow on from the previous thing he was saying. So could you just read out the rest of the yellow, basically? Mm-hmm. The rise of Skywalker might be that point. Working on nine, I found myself approaching it slightly differently, he says. Which is to say that on seven, I felt beholden to Star Wars in a way that was interesting. I was doing what, to the best of my ability, I felt Star Wars should be. But this time something changed. Abrams found himself making different choices for the camera angles, the lighting, the story. It felt slightly more renegade. It felt slightly more like, you know, fuck it, I'm going to do the thing that feels right because it does, not because it adheres to something. There are a lot of small, subtle ways that Abrams' Star Wars is different from Lucas's, but if there's a standout, it's the way that the new movies look at history. Lucas's Star Wars movies are bathed in the deep golden sunset glow of the idyllic Old Republic, that more civilised age. But the new movies aren't like that. They're not nostalgic. They don't long for the past. They're more about the promise of the future. This trilogy is about this young generation, this new generation having to deal with all the debt that has come before, Abram says, and it's the sins of the father, and it's the wisdom and the accomplishments of those who did great things, but it's also those who committed atrocities, and the idea that this group is up against this unspeakable evil, and are they prepared? Are they ready? What have they learned from before? It's less about grandeur. It's less about restoring an old age. It's more about preserving a sense of freedom and not being one of the oppressed. The idea of the movie is kind of how I felt going into the movie as a filmmaker, he says, which is to say that I've inherited all the stuff, great stuff, and good wisdom, and the good and the bad, and it's all coming to this end, and the question is, do we have what it takes to succeed? Okay, this last bit plays into this headcanon, or I guess like an in-real-world headcanon that I've had about JJ and Kylo since the beginning, since we got The Force Awakens, I kind of feel to an extent like Kylo was JJ's, I don't want to say self-insert, but the way he was talking about him back then, like in the commentary and other interviews, like talking about the the legacy that Kylo had inherited and how he was very conscious of Vader, it felt like t- JJ talking about how he was very conscious of the legacy of Star Wars and how he had to be very respectful to it, but also pave his own way in terms of telling a new story in that universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's just complete, completely off the rails and not at all there, but it's kind of a vibe that I've had for a while. I think that's a great observation, to be honest. I feel like it was true about Ryan, too, when he was talking about, like, Kylo was the character I was most interested in working with. Um, you feel that conflict from him, and he's incredibly relatable. I do feel like the creators really relate to Kylo and see him not as the main character, because Ray's there, too but yeah. that he embodies a lot of the concerns and anxieties that they would have around writing more Star Wars. Yeah. And Ray's almost the antithesis of that because she's all new. Yeah. And I think that's a really astute anal- analogy between like how Kylo's struggles have been depicted and those sentiments that like JJ certainly will have felt as a filmmaker because I do think it's... I do think there's a lot of similarity there. So if you think about it, Kylo attempts to viciously reject the past. No, actually, let me go again. Like At the start of the sequel trilogy, Kylo is trying to figure himself out and he's basically 
like f- performing a pantomime of how things were before in terms of trying to emulate his grandfather and be this intimidating dark lord but he finds he's not very good at it and if you think about a filmmaker i'm sure that a lot of filmmakers start out their careers trying to emulate the old masters that they admire and they love and if you try to do that too slavishly and adhere too much to what they were trying to pull off you're doomed to fail because even a good copy is never going to be as interesting as something that's unique and original that really bears your own stamp and then in the last jedi you obviously see kylo going to the other extreme where he's all like let the past die and he's like trying to destroy all those ties he has to the past and try and craft this new image of himself and again as a filmmaker i think that's a very relatable impulse to just try and break free of all those old structures and like forms of filmmaking and styles and try and create something that's entirely your own and then i think at the end of it you have to arrive at something of a compromise and try and make peace with what's come before while still preserving that originality and that sense of your own identity as an, as a person and as an artist uh, i that sounds all rambly and bullshitty but I, I can see it basically and i think that's a level on which you can read these comments and that you can read the arc of that character in relation to the story that's being told by these people yeah no i totally agree which makes it really interesting on a meta level the sequel trilogy i know it's tempting to read into things possibly too much maybe that's what we're doing but i do feel like the, i think the creators are trying to say something not just about not just in terms of the actual themes of the story but in terms of what it means to create and play in a world that existed and had this real mythological weight to it yeah no, exactly. This is not just about the general struggles of being a filmmaker, although you can read it on that level. It's also very specifically about creating legend, and even more specifically about the struggle of creating Star Wars itself. And yeah, you see that through the characters' journeys. So yeah, there's levels upon levels of like meta readings with this story. And I think it's part of why we love it so much, to be honest, because you can go as far with it as you want basically Mm. and i find that really rewarding and i think it it has led unfortunately or fortunately depending on how you look at it to a lot of um frustration in terms of people like latching on to speeches like let the past die as the thesis of what ryan was trying to do in the last jedi and he's actually had to clarify no (laughs) that's an idea that's presented and it's not like i'm saying kylo's wrong full stop but that by the end of the movie, Rey is the character we're following, and she's saying, no, you know what, I see what you're saying, but that doesn't really help anything. We have to go forward and we have to keep the past in mind. Yeah. Um, And as the protagonist and the hero, Rey is maybe the one we should be listening to. Not to discount what Kylo says. I obviously love him as a character, and I think he has value in terms of like what he's adding to Rey's arc there by presenting that idea it's obviously a very important step for Rey but it's also very important that she rejects that at the end and she's also kind of gone her own way from what Luke was saying too about basing his life or what he saw as the end of his life by obsessing and feeling that overwhelming guilt about his failures in the past Yeah. so that's just not the way to go about it I think I feel like that's what Ryan was saying so 
Wow, that was a lot of article and we probably read out like one tenth of it because it's so very long. It's worth reading the whole thing, but um, in terms of like what we can choose to focus on right now, is we, we can't do that for the whole piece. Exactly. So the way Vanity Fair did this is that they published the main article by Lev Grossman and then they published an extraordinary number of ancillary articles that like basically talked about specific elements of the larger article. So you had an article on Hux and Pride, you had an article on Zori, you had an article on Finn and Jana, etc, etc. And we're not going to go into all of those articles because most of them are just retreading what was covered in the main one. But we do want to talk about like some specific ones and specific parts of those specific articles. Um, because yeah there are some unique quotes to them and they add a bit more context and some interesting remarks to discuss so the first article we're going to look at is about how the plans for the trilogy the sequel trilogy were in place from the beginning and they're not saying it's like some sort of authoritative master plan that they follow down to the last letter so we know definitively that that is not true Um, but it's just about saying they had some general ideas about where they might end up and yeah, Kirsty, would you care to read out the highlighted bit? Sure. Having seen what Ryan did made me approach this from a place of instinct and gut. I was making choices I knew I would not have made on Seven, some story-wise, but more in terms of directing. I found myself feeling less like I'm going to try and do something that feels like it's only true to the specifics of this franchise or the story. As much as Abrams was inspired by Johnson, there also appears to be certain character paths in place from the beginning that didn't shift after The Last Jedi. I knew little bits from my first meeting with JJ, Adam Driver says, of where Kylo Ren finishes the story. An overall arc was very, not vague, the opposite. It was very clear, an end in sight even from the very beginning. The details obviously hadn't been worked out, but we had talked about the very thing that we'd been working towards with this last one. Citing meetings he's had with The Force Awakens and original trilogy writer Lawrence Kasdan, as well as Ryan Johnson and George Lucas, Abram says the ending they settled on was specifically designed to close a satisfying arc that spans not just these final three films, but the complete Skywalker trilogy. If a kid is watching all nine movies, Abram says, he or she sees this one path, this inevitability, and that's the challenge of this movie. I love reading this. It's very reassuring. (laughs) Yeah. Especially in light of, I know we've talked before, um and we don't see eye to eye on this but maybe like a little but um i i was saying that i i prefer ryan's directorial style for the last jedi over Mm -hmm. jj's for the force awakens um i think you're a bit more like in between like you love them both equally maybe yeah that's pretty much it yeah i just think ryan's was more interesting and it I really like hearing JJ acknowledge this because i can sympathize with him i can't imagine how difficult it is to make this movie the force awakens like yes we have the prequels but in terms of what they were trying to do like they've made it quite clear they were concerned about the reactions that the prequels got and they were really wanting to bring back that general audience in terms of kind of piling on that nostalgia for the ot in terms of like the settings classic arcs and i don't think it means that the force awakens is like a new hope but yeah I do think there were choices that JJ made to kind of be a little safer mm-hmm. um, and kind of appeal to people in terms of what they thought Star Wars, Star Wars was all about. Um, just for one silly or 
what you could consider silly small example i think ryan's movie has the least amount of like the screen wipe transitions between scenes of any star wars movie Mm -hmm. which is like a very small thing but that's something that feels very star wars for a lot of people yeah so and that's a choice that they make um of course so so i think ryan was a bit bolder in terms of those choices um but jj saying that that emboldened him in turn so not just about story but about the the way the movie is going to look and feel yeah no i'm really happy as well to read these quotes because while i definitely did like the direction and the visual style of the force awakens a bit more than you did i like totally see your points and it's not as clearly artistic as what they were doing with the last jedi and I love the idea that J.J. Abrams has been given more confidence after seeing what Ryan did in The Last Jedi. Because that, to me, like drives home this feeling that I've always had about the importance of having these different creative forces behind these movies. Because it does allow for this dialogue and help to avoid stagnation. Because just as Ryan was inspired by what J.J. did in The Force Awakens... Now JJ can be inspired by what Ryan did and he can let that inform the story he's telling and the choices that he makes as a director. And I think that's a wonderful thing and I think everyone benefits from it, basically. Mm-hmm. What I really like about this, I mean, I, I think I've said several times before on the show that I was really looking forward to hearing JJ talk about what he loved about Ryan's story. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just the story, but how he made the movie. So not only has Abrams taken that on board... But in terms of like talking about the overall arc, none of this is indicating, and I know there are people out there hoping, that JJ was going to wreck on Ryan's story in any way. Yeah. I think what they're emphasizing is that they had broad strokes laid out from the beginning of what they were going to do with Kylo and presumably other characters' arcs, and that because Ryan had the middle movie, he had a little more leeway in terms of how he was going to get from A to B. Because it's the middle, and then everything else is like wrapping it up or establishing it, which is what JJ is doing. Yep. So it's still, it's going to be in broad strokes that same story that JJ kind of envisioned from the beginning. Obviously, he didn't have everything lined up, and he didn't think that he was going to be making this last movie. But there's no way they would have gone to Kathleen Kennedy with this first part and then not had an answer for her in terms of where the characters might end up. Yeah, because how else do you how do you tell a story like that that has any meaning? Yeah, they just go someplace. They just end up somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think we should all feel very reassured by this. Um, The part where Adam says about knowing the end for Kylo, he said that before, so Mm -hmm. I won't dwell on that too much. But I do like that final part from JJ where he's like, if a kid is watching all nine movies, he or she sees this one path, this inevitability, and that's the challenge of this movie. And like, I love that quote because it does reinforce the idea of telling this story for children and keeping that viewership in mind because I think there's lots of cynicism and... I hate to say it, but you see lots of middle-aged men who grew up with the original trilogy saying, I don't relate to Ray, I don't relate to the story that's being told, it just doesn't get me emotionally. And my reaction to that is, I get that it's perhaps a little bit sad that you don't feel like you did as a child when you watch these movies, but you've only got to expect that because you have changed so much 
and it is possible to get in touch with that sense of childhood wonder and latch on to things like that again but you need to find that within yourself somehow because the story isn't necessarily going to like reach out to you in the way you might need it to for that to happen that's why i love what they did with luke in the last jedi so much because mm. they had that older disillusioned character right there who went on that arc like that's really powerful that they actually put that within the story yeah i think it is powerful it makes me sad that it perhaps didn't speak to the people who might have needed to latch on to that story the most but i'm really happy it's there i think it did speak to a lot of people i think it did too yeah you're always going to have that loud minority who reject it it was worth doing a hundred percent but ultimately even though this the sequel trilogy does remember that audience and try to give them something meaningful to latch onto in the characters like what they did with luke for example that isn't the primary audience and that's not who the story is really for because the story is for the young people watching these films today and i'm just happy to see them remember that because the sequel trilogy to me is so much more than just a cynical exercise in nostalgia is genuinely trying to offer something that feels resonant and real and has a purpose to it and yeah i love being reminded of that yeah no i agree obviously that's why we do this show (laughs) why we (laughs) love to talk about it every week because it Mm -hmm. has resonated with us so much and i'm genuinely sad when i think about people who wanted to love this story so much and haven't yeah maybe maybe it's a case of just time addressing that and when you get a little bit of distance from it and you processed it and you thought about it a bit more um but obviously there are always gonna be people who don't love each story and that's totally fine too yeah um I just think it is sometimes a case of recognizing that not every story is going to be for you in the way yeah. that it might be um, for others. Because I, I know that they'll, they'll say, obviously, Star Wars is for everyone, this is a story for everyone, and it is. It has very universal themes, but it's also of note that we have a female protagonist now. Like, that's very important for lots of people. So Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So basically Kirsty, for the next article i've split it up so that it's in two sections so yellow section is about rain kylo green section is about um ray's relationship more generally with like finn and poe etc because it's a long quote otherwise and i wanted to try and break it down a bit okay okay and then we get on to the second and final spin out article that we're going to read out and this one is about the truth about kylo ren and ray's connection by joanna robinson she starts with some scene setting about the ship and then she goes on more specifically to draw from quotes with them. So some of this will seem a bit familiar from the main article but there are extended versions and some new tidbits here so it's worth going into. So yeah, would you care to read out the yellow highlighted quote? Sure. Before I do that I want to emphasise a bit, a bit you haven't highlighted but I just loved it so much underneath the main he- heading. Um, her subheading was Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver discuss the intergalactic will they won't they <laughs> I love Joanna Robinson <laughs> she knows how to um, appeal to the shippers yeah but just not even like shippers the fact that this is in Vanity Fair this is the way they're choosing to present that relationship as a will they won't they oh yeah yeah no 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 I love it yeah because I think that is going to be a big question of the rise of Skywalker um and some people have been very certain that the answer is no they won't but again if the question is posed 
what does that usually mean? Yeah. What what does will they won't they usually mean in a romantic fairy tale? They won't. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Just messing with you. Okay. So Cool. When, when speaking about their characters with Grossman, both Ridley and Driver wound up describing similarly lonely and isolated childhoods for these Force-sensitive figures. Ray was literally abandoned by her parents, whoever they may be, and so has trouble comprehending how Kylo could shun his. But Ridley herself is much more understanding of the stress that might come from being raised by Han Solo and Leia Organa. Having the two coolest parents, and sometimes I'm sure it works amazingly, and sometimes it just might not. For Driver, this concept is the key to understanding Kylo Ren. If you were the product of those two people, two very strong personalities who seem to be almost more committed to a cause than anything else, what's that like? He says. Ben Solo is born to privilege, yes, but also tremendous pressure. Driver likens the Skywalker Solos to a royal family and notes the isolating power of being born with those spectacular gifts. How do you form friendships out of that? How do you understand the weight of that? It can easily go awry. Burdened by her own talents, Ray also feels that solitude. It's a bit lonely having that much on one's shoulders, Ridley says. Though their shared childhood isolation set them on two very different paths, the Ryan Johnson-directed Last Jedi showed Kylo and Ray finding kinship in each other. Ridley describes them as two quite powerful people who feel. <laughs> Driver adds that this... <laughs> Sorry. Driver adds that his character had been forging this maybe bond with Ray. The Last Jedi ends up with the question in the air. Is he going to pursue that relationship more, or when the door of her ship goes up, does that also close that camaraderie, this idea of being alone? If Kylo is still questioning, Rey is, at least initially, more resolute. Ridley says that as the rise of Skywalker begins, Rey is less inclined to believe that Kylo potentially could redeem himself. I love that Daisy always clarifies, well, at the beginning of the movie... <laughs> yeah okay so what you're telling us is that won't be the case at the end of the movie yeah i think some people really need that though like the panic is just like calm down people yeah no um i I really love what they're both saying here and god like seeing these comments about loneliness and that affinity between them it reminds me so much about those early early days of raylo meta after the force awakens it's like but, but they're both lonely they're both the only young force users they're isolated and connected by their unique powers and it's like they're saying what we've always been saying this is so cool which again was blatantly there in the text what did people think that interrogation scene was about i think you were gaslit so hardcore that we all doubted ourselves so Uh, it still makes it really special to see it said like this it's like i think yeah in terms of how explicit they would then make it in the last movie i guess like at times i was pretty unsure about it um but this was always at the core of the story yeah like the way that it's structured in in that first act the force awakens the way that these two characters come into each other's lives meet in like immediately connect in that incredibly intimate scene where they're going into each other's minds and seeing each other's deepest darkest fears and anxieties and desires uh it's like what else do you think is happening here (laughs) and then ryan built on that even further and then we're getting further promises that jj is going to keep going with that in the rise of skywalker so how much more intimate does it get okay i like to think that like JJ and Ryan have friendly competition going on over who can be more Raylo. So 
Yeah. Well, JJ gets the third act, so. Yeah. It is a bit of an unfair (laughs) balance then, isn't it? (laughs) Emphasising the whole Skywalker solos as a royal family and that Rey comes from nothing. Of course, we saw that in The Last Jedi in terms of Kylo's horribly ill-thought-out proposal. But talking about it here, it's like emphasising again, and this is stuff that George Lucas has said before, Star Wars is is a soap opera, it's a period drama. These mm-hmm. class differences are very intentional. Yeah. Um, and that's what they're talking about when they refer to them as being star-crossed. You saw that with Anakin and Padme. You see it with Han and Leia. The princess and the scoundrel. All of this stuff is very classic fairy tale. Um, it's important to their dynamics. Exactly. It's there for a reason. And I also find it interesting that here you get a different spin from Daisy as well. So in the main article, she's obviously like... I, Ray doesn't understand how Kylo could make this decision, how he could destroy his family when that's the thing that she's wanted all her life. And yeah, it's just interesting to see that like empathy for Kylo's position when she says, having the two coolest parents and sometimes I'm sure it works amazingly and sometimes it just might not. Like seeing that, it's good to see because yes, yeah, it shows that, I presume it shows that at some point Ray does reach a point of appreciating that or seeing where he comes from in that way like i doubt there will explicitly be a line in the movie where she's like yeah that must have been really hard (laughs) (laughs) you know but something some sort of sign of that like empathy and understanding like which she's already shown him in the last jedi but i think through the events of this movie the rise of skywalker they're obviously gonna have to build up that trust and that relationship again to reach that point of feeling that empathy and compassion for each other. Mm-hmm. And of course, Daisy's going to have a more broad view understanding of the story and the characters than Ray herself. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But like you say, to an extent, the actors are speaking from the character's perspective. So if she's saying that, I think especially combined with, well, at the beginning, she thinks this, um, yeah. it shows shockingly some character development and growing understanding from the protagonist yeah weird (laughs) oh and also like i'm not sure i'll include this but that line two quite powerful people who feel Mm -hmm. (laughs) what are you even trying to say daisy I, i know they have to like like dance rings around these things you know but who feel what yeah I think uh, Adam said similar things about Kylo in the past. I'm not sure about Rey, but he's said about how the Force powers mean that Kylo has been very sensitive and felt things very intensely from an early age. And that, combined with not feeling like he had enough people to guide him, you know, influenced his choices. Yeah. No, I I think, like you say, it just means they're quite emotionally sensitive people and Mm -hmm. quite in tune with that. Um, okay, cool. Would you care to read out the green quote? Looking back over the long arc of nine films, it's easy to see the Skywalker saga as not only a story about repairing fractured bonds and escaping repeated patterns of a specific bloodline, but also that the families we create for ourselves. John Boyega's Finn and Oscar Isaac's Poe Dameron are both options of support for Rey as she tries to build something new out of the ashes of her first attempt to reach Kylo Ren. It's not about just one person, Isaac says, of how his character deals with the strain of leadership and heroism in The Rise of Skywalker. It's about reaching out to his family, and particularly Finn is his family. 
Ridley says Ray is also part of that relationship, but kept apart a bit due to her forced sensitivity. Will Kylo Ren and Ray reforge their own connection? And if they do, will it be love or simply friendship that unites them? The answer, Driver says, is incredibly complicated. I don't think it's any one thing. The strength in what Ryan wrote and what JJ wrote is it's never all one thing. <laughs> Bless them, they have to find so many ways of not answering these questions. Well, I think they've got a fair point because I think this reminds me of something that Jason Fry has said before about, you know, he, he wrote the Last Jedi novelization and had to describe how these force connections happen. There is this like spiritual connection between them two, which, oh yeah, which on a real world level, we can't quite get like, and that in itself, I think is very romantic, but maybe it's romantic with a, an uppercase R, you know? So, yeah. um, Yeah. Uh, maybe it's about what each audience member brings to it which is also fine so no exactly it's a many faceted thing and yeah it's interesting to see that point being made about how ray struggles a bit to connect with safe and empire because of that full sensitivity and that it does mean she's somewhat set apart mm-hmm. yeah i mean that i think that is classic fairy tale troping again. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when you've had this connection and then you go back, you enter the real world again. Um, you've changed so much and had all of these experiences that mean there is this like a little separation, even if you don't want there to be. Yeah. Exactly. And not to blow her own trumpet, but it does remind me of our Mad Woman in the Attic episode. Where we obviously drew those comparisons to stories like Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre and the whole situation. When you're separated from your animus, like you can find like a fulfilling and like satisfying life with people whose company you enjoy and who you trust, but you'll always feel that sense of perhaps separation or like there's a lack in some way. And yeah, then that eventually drives you towards the conclusion where there does have to be that reconciliation and that reunion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can understand why people might have some objections to that story. If they read it in a way that like, oh, it means that Ray needs Kylo. Um, but this is told on a much... It's, it's a romantic level of, you know, tying it to things like the red string of fate, where... There's this unbreakable bond between characters who are each other's other half, as you say. Like, there's something supernatural happening here. Um, They find things in each other that they couldn't find in anyone else. So, how do you fight that? (laughs) You don't. There's, like, this sense of fate and inevitability there. Um, But the characters have to evolve before getting to that point of acceptance. Mm-hmm. and of yeah recognizing that essence in each other precisely okay cool so i think that actually finally brings us to the end of our vanity fair coverage so it's been exhausting but a lot of fun um and yeah i'd like to think we did it justice um we'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about it or any questions for us so remember that you can always email us at scavengershoard at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, we have one listener question that we'd like to get to before we close out the show. So yeah, would you care to read this out, Kirsty? Sure. This came from Alison on Tumblr. 
Um, she said she has a question for us. There's been a lot said about how the repairing of Ben's helmet and him donning it again is a step back for the character, as him destroying helmet was a big step forward for him. But I've seen very little that talks about the fact that Ray has gone back to a hairstyle similar to her The Force Awakens look. It's not an exact replica, as it's different the way that Kylo's helmet is, but would you say it's a step backwards for her into the childhood look instead of the more mature hair being down from The Last Jedi? I find it particularly interesting since so much was written about her hair coming down, but I haven't really run across what her going back to a three-updo style again could signal for her. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, on a practical level, I think a lot of it, or at least kind of what has been suggested, is that they wanted Rey to look more similar to her look in The Force Awakens to make it easier for um, connecting those scenes that they're going to be showing with her and Leia. But yeah, I don't correct. actually know how true that's going to end up being. So we'll have to see how much screen time they share together to see if that's actually the explanation. In terms of symbolism, I do think it's connected to Kylo's helmet. Um, I can see why people would think that it's them going backwards, but in terms of actually telling the story, I think it's about going forwards. So it's right. kind of a case of you needing that regression because of the heartbreak that they have both experienced at the the emotional climax of The Last Jedi, like what we've been talking about. Um, Rey feeling like there's no chance of Kylo's redemption. And Kylo being like, well, I'm supreme leader now, so I guess I have to double down on that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the way things will end, but it's in terms of like showing us where the characters are, it gives us a clue into their emotional state at the time. Because Rey's back with Finn. She's connecting with Poe. Um, but as Daisy has hinted, there's still that separation. So things are not going to be the same, but there's, at the beginning of the movie, I think they're going to want to set out that as the premise, like, yay, she's with the Resistance, they're going on missions together, they're going to defeat the dark side together, and then things go from there. Yeah. No, it's an interesting question. Um, I agree with anything it would indicate regression, to go back to that hairstyle. Um, there's also the practical point of she's going to be in a desert environment for a lot of the time. And it would be deeply impractical to wear your hair loose in a desert environment. Of course, films are art. They're not about being practical. So they could have easily had Ray with long flowing locks in the desert if they had so desired. But they chose to have it up. So yeah, that could be about linking her to that older version of herself again. I think it's also an interesting point about the parallels or correlation with Kylo wearing the helmet again. Although... I find there's quite an interesting question mark over that because so far we haven't seen definitively Kylo in the helmet. We've seen a few marketing images of a character we assume to be Kylo in the helmet, but like all of the Vanity Fair images of Kylo, he's without the helmet. And equally in the trailer, whenever we see Kylo, he's without the helmet. And we see the helmet being repaired in the trailer, but it's very ambiguous about the circumstances of that and when that might occur. Because I have a hard time seeing the logic in having a situation where at the start of the film, Kylo is maskless. So as he is in the Vanity Fair photos, which for the sake of argument, I'm going to assume they're from quite early in the film. Because they are revealing what would appear to be quite big things, like a big jewel. And if that really was going to be at the end, I doubt they'd be showing that right now. Um, and he's maskless in those and then the question would be well then does he get a mask after those scenes because I just don't see the I don't see how that tracks basically 
and it's all very mysterious to me right now and it leaves lots of question marks in my mind. Yeah, I know there are lots of theories out there as to why we see Kylo's mass being repaired, especially in the context of, like you say, so far we've not seen any images of Kylo, the real Kylo, played by Adam Driver in footage. Um, That just hasn't appeared. We've seen him on packaging for toys um, and the mask by itself in the teaser being fixed, but not him wearing it. So it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Um, yeah. I know that there's been a lot of talk about the symbolism behind Kylo's mask being repaired um, and I I do think a lot of that holds weight but it's just going to be interesting to see how it plays out in the movie because you do sense a little bit of mystery around that because if that was the case it would be pretty safe to show Kylo wearing the helmet right? Uh huh. Yeah I think it's ambiguous for a reason Hmm so we'll just have to wait and see on that one. Um, but yeah, another point is if you're, we're thinking about hairstyles and what might happen to them, we've got to remember that they both get absolutely soaked through <laughs> during their fight because, yeah, waves are crashing on them. So one assumes that their hair will be in a state of disarray, shall we say. <laughs> and we have that shot of Kylo from Celebration where he's in the cockpit and he looks a bit bedraggled and like like he has just been wet, basically. Sorry, I feel so stupid saying this, but it's true. Um, and my work in theory would be that that follows on from the scene where they're fighting. Yeah, and there's been talk about whether he's actually flying the tie at that point or if he's on the other side. Because it's a two-seater, right? Right. Um. Some people have noticed things in the background that make them wonder if it's actually not the cockpit. He's not flying. He's, like, the the gunman. Oh, wow. How interesting. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know enough about ships to say either way. Um, But it's a possibility that, like, Ray is on the other side actually flying the ship. Yeah. Because, like you say, he looks like he's been through it at that point. And we've now got this picture of them dueling in the rain. So, do they both get, like, muddy and wet and then... Somehow be like, okay, we've we've got to band together to go and off and do this other thing. Yeah. Whatever happens, I presume Ray's gonna need a trip to her, her hairstylist after that. <laughs> you it's mean Chewy? Go well. <laughs> yes, Chewy. <laughs> exactly. Chewy and the porks. Hairstylists extraordinary. Yeah, they're like the little birds in fairy tales that like yes. fly around and help her change her outfit and put her mascara on yeah no exactly she can sing a pretty doleful song while they do it (laughs) wonderful okay awesome um i think that is a good note to end on so i'm rachel you can find me at stars nonsense on tumblr and at journal of the stars on wordpress where can people find you kirsty i'm bastila bay on tumblr and scavengers horde on twitter thank you so much for listening and until next time bye bye